You are listening to Spacetime Mind. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Ray, can you hear me? Ray, answer me. Go ahead, George. I'm listening. Get into the pilot seat and disconnect the electronic brain. Somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. In space! Hello everybody, this is Pete Bandick. Welcome to Space Time Mind. Today's guest is my good friend Alex Kiefer of Monash University, Cognition and Philosophy Lab and Philosophy Department. I've asked Alex to join me today to talk about recent advances in artificial intelligence that many of us have encountered in the news. These include models like Lambda, DAL-E, GPT-3. Are these things sentient, sapient, conscious? Do they have agency? Do they have moral standing? Will they anytime soon? Anyway, I trust Alex to know way more about this stuff than I do. I should also mention that Alex is an excellent musician, specializing in electronic music, especially chiptune music. We'll listen to some of his stuff at the midpoint break, and I'll put some links to his albums on Bandcamp. And I also have to mention that he was the keyboardist in the band Quiet Karate Reflex with me and Richard Brown and Hakwan Lau. Anyway... I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alex Kiefer. All right. Welcome, everybody, to this special emergency session of the Space Time Mind broadcast. Robots are taking over the world or something, and it's, it, I haven't really kept up with the literature on this stuff. Like I, I thought I was pretty slick back in the 90s as a philosophy grad student who also knew a little bit about neural networks. But, you know, you have some kids, you get promoted to full professor. Next thing you know, there's like a whole massive sub industry that I know jack shit about. Well, well I do know I do know Alex Kiefer. So you're going to you're the expert. Uh, Tell us about what the fuck is going on with Lambda. That's the one that's been in the news big time recently because some Google dude maybe got laid off for saying Lambda had sentience or some shit. Anyway, what, what are these things? Well, what's your uh, hot takes? Say, my hot take is that, is that all that stuff from the nineties was just right. So you actually know everything. It's just like, my <laughs> but that's probably a, that's probably not a very popular position. Um, yeah. I think the guy got, got uh, he's on like unpaid leave or something. Um I haven't followed up on, on what's happened with that story, but yeah. So uh, I just think, uh, I think that the, 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 what, okay. So I, I got embroiled in a, in a minor, you know, discussion debate on Twitter over this. And what, what got me, what wrote me in was 
that everyone was like certain that this thing couldn't be conscious, right? This, this, right. Uh, you know, trillion parameter language model. And we're talking specifically about Lambda, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's not that I think that Lambda necessarily is conscious, although I feel a little bad saying that. So it's like, you know, it's not like, um, you know, the days of yore where it was just like, well, obviously that thing is just, uh, it's just a hundred lines of code or whatever. Right. Um, I mean, Lambda could be fewer lines of code than that, but, uh, you know, um, anyway, I think, uh, I think that the quality of the, of the, of the arguments for the, the sort of negative position just seemed really kind of, kind of shitty to me. So that's what, that's what pulled me in. Can we, um, but. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there's so much to, to talk about here. Like uh, we could talk about the, I mean, of course, obviously, of course, things have happened since the nineties. Sure. Okay. But I think it's basically just connectionism with fancy architectures and maybe slightly different learning objectives, you know, um, in terms of what produces these amazing results that, that are getting people to think that something might be sentient, you know? I wonder if you would be willing to, uh, to do a little Lambda for dummies, maybe a little, like spend like five minutes or so to just say like, um, cause I, you know, I think people read about this, like lay, the lay, lay persons read about some of this stuff in the, in the popular press. And they really d- don't know anything about like what the architecture is or what the, the training data are. And so I wonder if we could just say, spend a little, a little bit of time talking about, you know, four dummies uh, yeah. fashion. Like, so what is Lambda? What is Lambda? What are the inputs to Lambda? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, so there was a caveat that I actually don't know that much about Lambda specifically because I mean, as far as I know, this isn't like a, it's not like an open source project or if it is, then I haven't looked at it. Um, but I know the kinds of models that, that Google's using for this stuff. So, so we can, yeah, like, I mean, I guess they're really like the really for dummies version is it's a neural network. Well, that's not right. That's not really for dummies. <laughs> um, that's dumb enough. If you know what for sp- space time yeah, 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 dummies okay. know what a neural network is. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah. So, uh, so my 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 bet with like you know I bet I bet a hundred dollars that seems crazy I bet maybe a hundred dollars that 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 lambda is is some form of, of transformer or some other large large giant overparameterized neural net so like basically okay so first of all inputs um, it's trained on a corpus of you know a billion sentences Wikipedia whatever um, and again I'm speaking in general about big language models here like state of the art kind of big language models, but Lambda is definitely some form of that, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, you train, we can get into specifics, but you train like a, uh, uh, I think of this as an unsupervised learning objective. So if, you know, you're big into this connectionist stuff, right? <laughs> as you said. Yeah, 90s. 90s. I got the, yeah, but, here to represent the 90s. But so, man, so unsupervised learning was so popular in the 90s, or at least that's when, that's when a lot of the cool like landmark papers came out like the wake sleep algorithm stuff so like you know this idea that you can use the sensory signal itself to train the network it's like super exciting right um and then but the thing that took off and and transformed connectionism into deep learning was was supervised learning via backpropagation from like a target which you know a lot of philosophers i remember i got into this stuff in graduate school but every all the philosophers were saying oh this is nothing they can't do variable binding it's it's unrealistic anyway the way it learns you know 
um, because you're taking sort of a teacher signal and fitting the, your model directly to the teacher signal. But the whole, the idea that you can just pick up on this structure, the nested statistical structure of the, um, you know, the relationships between the inputs, if you have a big sensory input channel, like an image or something, um, is, is what was exciting to me about unsupervised learning. And so the, the case of language is interesting, right? Because language isn't exactly like images, but um, anyway, um, the, the uh, stop me if I'm like, if this is like too going into the weeds. Let but, me ask you some baby questions. Oh, okay. Uh, sure. uh, just so people get a handle on stuff like um, the difference between supervised and unsupervised learning uh, and to kind of also lay the groundwork for um, the, what's potentially cool about Lambda and some of these other things. So like back old school connectionism, um, especially for philosophy people that, that maybe have picked up some of this stuff by reading like Paul or Pat Churchland papers. Um, again, this is the nineties or, you know, even earlier, this is like stranger things for philosophy. So we're going back to the eighties, nineties, you've got like a feed forward three layer connectionist network and you're training it to, for example, um, sort I images into like uh, male human faces versus female human faces. And the output units are something like one is labeled male and the other one is labeled female. And then the input units are like this array, uh, this artificial retinal array of something like pixels from the images. Um, and everything is connected to everything else in this feed forward sort of way. Um, and the, the human beings that have set this all up, they know or, or have decided which of those images count as male faces and which of those have counted as female faces. And then the application of like, say, um, the learning algorithm, maybe it's back propagation, is going to involve some kind of measurement of how close to the right answer they got, right? So you show it a face and it says either the right answer or the wrong answer, depending on whether it was right or wrong, that will influence the way in which the weights get adjusted. Right. And now that's, that would be supervised, right? Or unsupervised. That's, that's supervised. Yeah. And supervised. And what makes it supervised is like that the researchers already know what the right answer is. And in some sense, there's a causal influence from the researchers who have, who know uh, to the, the, you know, the ultimate output of the model. Right. Um, where some, something like unsupervised learning would be like, there's, you're not, you're not telling in any way what the right answer is or, or, or indicating what the desired outcome is or something like that. So you got like the one example that comes to my mind uh, from, of this stuff is you just have some kind of like annealing process. And then next thing you know, you have like the analog of cortical columns right. and you weren't looking for cortical columns. You weren't trying to, you weren't rewarding it for getting it's just like this weird fucking emergent sort of yeah. <laughs> outcome uh, that's the way the thing settled yeah, out. Yeah. um and so like now with these uh what do you what do you want would you call them big language yeah uh, big was that giant, the phrase you used uh, giant I language models said, yeah yeah so the the inputs instead <laughs> of a bunch of pictures of faces the inputs are coming from a corpus of linguistic data right? Like you said, was it Wik literally Wikipedia? 
just like here, here you stupid network, go read Wikipedia. Right. And then what are the outputs? Yeah. So this, okay. So the, you set up, <laughs> you set things up beautifully, Matt, if I can. So you have the feed forward network in the supervised learning case. It's just like, a, let's say it's an image, just to go back to images for a second and then three layers and then an output. So unsupervised learning, it's really not that deep a distinction, right? So so yeah, you can say unsupervised learning means there's no input from a teacher. I mean, that's it's a bit of a straw man, right? But really what unsupervised learning is, is you just sort of flip, twist that around on itself and make the input the output, right? So um, I think the classic example is the Helmholtz machine. Um, if this, if I were doing this slide, I would like throw up a paper title now, um, but you'll, you'll, you'll do your space-time mind magic, uh, but uh, editing to this later. But anyway, um, so, so the Helmholtz machine takes images as input. It's got, let's say three, um, three layers of nodes. And so let's say you wanna classify the digits zero through nine. So on the top layer, you, you just give it a little bit of help by setting it up so that there are 10 nodes in the top layer, right? And then there's various versions of this, but basically- The top you, layer, you mean the output layer? Well, it's not really the output layer anymore, right? So oh. you've got, <laughs> so let's, okay. let's just take the visual of a three layer neural network, right? Input is images, some yep. hidden layer, and then what, what normally would have been the output layer. So in this case, you just feed the thing an image, propagate a signal up to the top layer, which has 10 nodes in it, and then propagate, usually through a different set of weights, propagate a signal back down to the image and measure the difference between the reconstruction and the image. Okay. So it's a lot like supervised learning, right? You're still, you are telling the network in virtue of its architecture and a loss function, like sort of what it should learn. It should learn to reconstruct the inputs. But okay. if it does this well, and if you're kind of lucky and right, if the gradient descent goes well, then you'll end up with 10 nodes at the top layer uh, that represent each of the digits in terms of their functional role, right? Because if you feed the thing a, a picture of, of a one, uh, you know, again, this is not like by any means a guaranteed outcome, but if you train it successfully, then one of those top level nodes will end up representing a one just because it was forced to compress the information into that top layer, right? And we know there are 10 okay. classes and there are 10 nodes, so. Okay, right. so let me, let me just make sure I'm getting the gist of this. So suppose I have a whole bunch of different photographs of numerals, single, right, single digit numerals. Yeah. Um, and the, these can be all sorts of different fonts, photographs with a, a, a wide variety of lighting conditions, right? So maybe you just go around, you photograph people's addresses and people have all sorts of different carvings and, uh, or children drawing numbers with crayons, all sorts of different, like a, a wide variety of images. Now, human beings, we could look at these images and despite all the differences, we could sort them into 10 piles, zero, one, two, up through nine. Um, and so we could see all these similarities despite these differences. But it is like when you start thinking about how that's done, it, it's probably something kind of complicated. It's really hard. You know, you think about like, the numeral four, there's lots of different ways to make a numeral four. You could have it open at the top or you could have it connected uh, into a, you could have the pointy top four and the, the open four. You could have sans serif and serif versions of both of those. You could have a blue one and you could have a white one. You could have one that's partially occluded by a bird that happened to be flying by. So you got all these different photographs and in some sense, you're telling the network, okay, motherfucker, sort these. 
and, and you don't tell it, by the way, you only have 10 nodes. It just happens to have as those 10 yeah. nodes. And then by what, you know, what of course isn't a miracle, but might seem a little miraculous. It settles into this, this configuration whereby the, these thousands of images naturally seemed then to be in these 10 distinct piles. Right. Right. And there's, there's all sorts of ways to make it seem less magical. Like, you know, you can talk about sort of heavy and learning at the synapse level in these networks that sort of carves channels for the input, sig- the, the signals to propagate such that this happens. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that it is important to point out that, yeah, just like seeing numbers is not a trivial thing. Like, I guess we've had OCR for a long time, but it, you know, it wasn't that great. It's hard. <laughs> you know, if you've ever like sat down and tried to do some baby version of the, the programming, like if you were to try to explicitly program um, a computer to identify from two-dimensional visual inputs when it's looking at the number four or not, right? You, you just think of like this huge list of if-then statements. So if there's a pixel here, 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 but not here, but here, but not here, that counts as a four, <laughs> Uh, right. Like if you try to just brute yeah. force this, you would ha- have this huge program. You could make up a, a lookup table, but it would involve a lot of work on your part as the human being. You'd have to know all the right answers ahead of time and then all, all yeah. possible right answers. And, and then somehow put the, like explicitly build that structure into your machine. But what's great about these things is that the, the structure somehow lives in the data. We're not sure how it lives in the data. And this awesome machine is able to extract the structure from the data. And, and oftentimes we're not sure how it did it. There's a, like back in the eighties, nineties, there was this fun example of a, uh, per, it was, I think a perceptron that was identi- like identifying tanks in a military sense of the word tank as like a heavy armored vehicle. Uh, it was a video camera system that was able to identify the presence of, of tanks in, you know, oftentimes these scenes where there's lots of trees and the tank is partially occluded by a, by a building or something like that. There might be things in the scenes that you might mistake for a tank. And um, it was able to extract tanks based on features that the researchers weren't quite sure what, what the features were like, and you might think if, you know, you could kind of like do a rational reconstruction of this. You look at all these scenes, you might be like, you know what actually this thing is doing is not so much detecting tanks, but it's detecting corners. It's detecting things like T junctions, right? There's certain kinds of intersections you get in photo- photographs of machines and other, mar- there's all these right angles and stuff like that, where it, in um, nature, photographs of trees and plants like that, you're not going to see as many T intersections or um, I'm sure I'm bungling the oh, no, 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 example, no. but that's the gist of it. Like their structure, the humans may not even know which structures are the, are the, are the ones that are doing the lifting or the, or the doing the heavy, uh, heavy work here. Um, so now let's, can we try to translate this into language corpi and, and big language models? So with something like Lambda, you've got um, a bunch of Wikipedia articles. There's, there's structure in there implicitly, right? Like without telling, without telling um, the machine, for example, the difference between a noun and a verb, 
there's just enough structure in the language that that information can yeah you know reassert itself without anybody explicitly telling it like okay by the way these are these words are nouns and uh, sometimes they work as adverbs and when they're in this part of the sentence they're more likely to be the grammatical subject but when they're more towards the end they're more like you don't have to tell it any of that the 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 truth is out there in the language itself it has enough structure so that you train it on on that and then it could spit it back at you in right you could say like okay um right like uh come up with a parody of welcome to the jungle by guns and roses that seems like it was written by oliver wilde or i'm sorry oscar wilde uh although oliver wilde i'd be interested in that one too um so uh welcome to the jungle by guns and roses reinterpreted by oscar wilde and then it comes up with this thing it's just like oh that's really you read the output and you're like that's really very clever i wouldn't even know how to explain to somebody what would make something simultaneously appear like it came from oscar wilde and it came from axel rose and slash and duff mckeegan i wouldn't know how to explain that but i i could recognize that it fucking nailed it. Yeah. Um, and so how, how, have I, how am I doing so far with, you know, great. I mean, say I think false. I know I've got like, I had like three branches off of every sentence that I want to uh, explore, but like basically, um, yeah, I think that's, I, I, I was going to point out one thing. So I think that there was a, there was a big thing that happened. I don't know exactly where the roots of this begin, but like, I don't know, 20, 2011 or so, or 12, like where, so you can imagine how this sort of would work with images, right? Cause you can, you can sort of like, there would be correlations between pixels, right? So there's this big multi-dimensional high information content signal, which is the image stream, right? But for language, you've just got these like words, uh, which, you know, of course you could start with images of words, but that's just, that's right. That's making it needlessly complicated. So you've got- right you've got like a discrete vocabulary of however many words and you have to figure out how can we apply the same kinds of algorithms to language as to words. And, and the answer is uh, a language embedding. So basically through training this, uh, a network on this giant linguistic corpus, you can derive a representation for each word or each character or each sentence, whatever level you're running the thing on. Um, That's basically just like a, a big vector right because when you when you when you convert into into math into code it's an image is just a big vector of numbers so you just learn a language vector by doing unsupervised learning so that like you scan say you scan like a, a small sliding window over the corpus right so you're you're reading a sentence essentially taking in five words at once and you learn the language embed, the word embedding so that it gets to be good at predicting words around it which is a simple right unsupervised it's it's some people might call it supervised learning but you you see why i'd call it unsupervised it's basically taking the input and using it to reconstruct a different part of the input or like a a so it's about like uh a word adjacency or like frequency of of exactly and is it um and then you could uh one thing you could do is define a neighborhood for a word so like what's the next you know what's the next word uh you know one either one ahead 
or or, or one behind. And uh, or what's two? What what is? Uh, couldn't you also give a neighborhood definition where it's like two words away, three words away? Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a free parameter. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, so there's all sorts of statistical structure implicit in the corpus, right? So, for example, maybe no one, no one has ever written into Wikipedia a sentence whereby the word peanut butter um, is followed by the word Jupiter. So, peanut butter Jupiter is a real low frequency. Very unlikely. <laughs> um, but uh, peanut butter sandwich, that pairing is really. Um, really quite high or like uh i would like uh blank 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 peanut butter blank yeah there's enough structure there's enough statistical information implicit in the corpus that uh, a system trained on the uh, on the corpus could fill in the, the blanks in a way that's quite similar to the uh, human um fluid english speaker would fill in the blanks and right it would yeah. And, and even even if a couple different speakers came up with a couple different answers, yeah. they're not going to be chaos or random. They're going to be more likely to be grammatical than not. They're going to make a certain amount of sense, right? It's right. you know, so the, it's not going to be Jupiter. It's yeah, going to yeah. be so the, peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch or something like that. Or I was hungry and then I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch. So now you've got this thing that's that's giving these outputs that you haven't explicitly programmed it in like it's, it's not like there's a giant lookup table filled with grammatically correct english sentences and this is just spitting them out after accessing a random number generator you have something that is like it read wikipedia and now um if you ask it you know for its opinion about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches it will give you paragraphs and paragraphs that seem like it's those paragraphs are generated by somebody who understands something about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and appropriate things to say about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And further, if you Google these paragraphs, no plagiarism will be detected. These will be original in the sense that they're not copied. Like these paragraphs are not copied and pasted from anything that was ever written down anywhere. They're somehow extracted based on statistical information implicit in the corpus. Yeah, I, I totally agree with all that. I, I, you hear the argument though that that lambda and things like that are just glorified lookup tables. I don't yeah. buy, it, but um, there is a sense in which that could be true. If you if you overfit a model dramatically, then it can essentially memorize data points. You know. So I wonder uh, if we. Could, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you off. Please, please. Uh, I, it, I, that's one of infinitely many rabbit holes. We you go down so so i propose uh if we need to fill in any more for for uh uh you know the, the 101 lesson we could go back to that but maybe we could start wading into spicy take country yeah uh here's the spiciest take uh, i can think of right now and, and uh, let me see how far you could go along with this um so this is and i'm trying to be extra spicy here so here's a really spicy take um we human beings when we learn all the stuff we learn in order to be able to talk in a good way about peanut butter jelly sandwiches what we're doing is 99.9 percent exactly what we just said that machine is doing so uh, by the way ladies and gentlemen who are only accessing the audio alex just gave me two thumbs up (laughs) 
True. which is the maximum number of thumbs from Alex. There's That's not a third thumb. Um, got two, two out of two thumbs. Um, so a lot of people I've, I've been seeing discussing this sort of thing. They make what I think of as a Stephen Harnad symbol grounding kind of argument, whereby um, part of what we're worried about here is semantics. Like, do these machine states have aboutness? Are, are they are they meaningful in some real sense of the, of the term meaning? Um, and a lot of skeptics will say, no, no, no. I mean, it's just uh, like, they've never like the, ah, this Lambda thing. It's not like it's in a robot that has cameras for eyes that it could, like, it could look at a sandwich or it can walk. It's embodied and inactive and then walk its ass over to the refrigerator and find some peanut butter. You don't have any of those, head world relations that would ground symbols and so therefore it's pure syntax it's not semantics uh it doesn't really understand what peanut butter is unless and i hate all that shit i think that like no that's that 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 applies to human beings almost none of the time like most of what we're able to think about and understand has zero to do with what you could see right like I could tell you something like, you know, I, I think I'm, I need a new, um, I need a new briefcase, uh, but not a Louis Vuitton briefcase, like the one you bought me 10 years ago, but I do need a, a new briefcase. And I need to have it by uh, Wednesday. Um, right. So like, there's a lot of concepts I just used that there's no way to define in strictly perceptual terms. Like what makes something Wednesday? How do you build a Wednesday detector? Right. The, the the story like maybe you could tell some kind of symbol grounding story about peanut butter but that's probably really hard too but you certainly couldn't do it for wednesday or or, or the concept of a briefcase or louis vuitton um and so i'm inclined to think like yeah like most of what we know is like we just extracted it from the structure um you know you think of you think of examples of people that are able to just generate like people that have the gift of gab or people that you suspect of being con men. <laughs> like there's certain people out here that they, that, that, that they can just talk and they just can fill, they can fill the page. There's no dead air. They always have something to say, but if you really try to press them on anything and figure out like, wait, what the fuck are they saying? You realize they're just full of shit. They're just stringing things together because maybe it sounds good or seem plausible, but if you force them to like, that to, that is what lambda is and, to make but, a commitment. <laughs> those are people. <laughs> so I'm inclined to like that's a very spicy take. I'm inclined to think that um, a lot of what we're doing is just language. It's just language, it, and the inputs to it is language, not the world, not perception, just language. There's structures uh, built into the language. We we are able to get it because we were trained by other humans that get it not because like we went out into the world and we looked at uh you know we looked at the water and we said water and now there's a causal chain from my water tokenings to the actual h2o like that's almost never the case for most of the things that are that we're able to think and say it's more like um what lambda seems to be doing which is just picking up on statistical uh patterns and, and relating language to other pieces of language yeah yeah i mean i i 
I couldn't agree more about about ninety nine point nine percent of that. Um, I think uh, there's a couple of different arguments there. There's like semantics, true reference versus just you know we're just like int int intro language learning, right? Right. But I I agree that I don't think there's such a you know I, I think we get semantics from a whole bunch of syntax. Uh, I don't think there's any other way. Um, but like. Uh, I think that one of the debates that that sort of sub debates here is like, okay, so maybe maybe Lambda is like doing just what we do with language, but apparently then that's not enough to make you like intelligent or sentient or whatever, which to me is like, I don't know, I'm not sure what the goalposts are here exactly, but like, okay, so you, you could get to be just as good at language as, as we are maybe, but then I think what, you know, uh, I, again, I kind of agree with you, but if I'm going to try to like, um, uh, put forward the best version of this argument that I could, I, I might say like, well, even if the thing gets to be as good at producing, generating plausible sentences in context as people do, if it doesn't have the symbol grounding and maybe some other magic stuff like reference, whatever the fuck that is, then, uh, then it's, then it's not going to be like, uh, it's not intelligent. It's not certainly not sentient and all this stuff. I, I assume sentience might, presuppose some intelligence or something. I don't know. Maybe they're. So there's a, there's a day, there's the thing I worry about in this neck of the woods. Um, and it's it's going to take me a little time to express what the worry is, but it goes something like this. Um, there are certain debates in philosophy where it, it's hard to know whether all the interlocutors to these debates are following the same rules so, for example, the zombie debate, um, most people that are like really deep into the zombie debate appreciate that one of the rules of the game is that the zombies are behaviorally indistinguishable from the non-zombies. But oftentimes there's contributors to the zombie literature that seem not to appreciate that. They seem to think like they like the proposal that the zombie is behaviorally just like the consciousness haver is so outrageous to them. They don't even appreciate that there's some people that, that actually believe exactly that, right? So they assume that there has to be some kind of behavioral difference between the consciousness haver and the consciousness lacker. And so they go looking for like, you know, they try to figure out like a, how to build a detector that would detect the presence or absence of consciousness based on uh, behavioral data it's like no like if you're gonna say shit like that you're a type a materialist you're not a zombie lover stop talking about zombies right. um so anyway there's these these positions in philosophy where uh like for zombies zombies are supposed to be behaviorally just like consciousness havers um with some like semantic externalism twin earth sorts of xyz versus h2o shit there's no behavioral difference between the people thinking about H2O and the people thinking about XYZ. Mm -hmm. um, and um, similarly with like Chinese room, right? The, the Chinese room says all the right things. If, if you think it says different things and that's how you would know, you don't understand. No, you, that's not the rules of the game. Um, so there's a version of these debates where like, I think the rules of the game are something like, look, this is the difference between champagne and sparkling wine. 
there's there's this thing and if you put that thing in a robot body then it would behave the way we do it happens not to be in a robot body so then the question of whether it has intelligence or not is just the same as the question of whether my behavioral doppelganger has phenomenal consciousness or whether or whether sparkling the sparkling wine that we're examining counts as champagne it all will boil down to these extrinsic things did the sparkling wine originate in the champagne region of france yes or no if it did then it's champagne if it didn't it's not champagne the end right um right so <laughs> this is anyway that's all a lead up to the this question um do uh, do do people think that like the the only problem is that it's not in a body? It, 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 would they be satisfied if we slapped Lambda into a body and gave it, you know, a robot body with camera eyes and microphone ears? I mean, uh, or do they really think that like there's some some kind of outputs that it just can't reliably generate? I I really think it's a combination of both, but I yeah. I. I I, I talked about this with Gary Marcus a bit on Twitter, and he basically suggested that, well, the thing's not in a robot body. So, so I, I argued something very similar. I said, if, if you put it into a robot body, actually Google has, has put another one of these language models into a robot body, and it works pretty well. Like You tell it to, can you go get me an apple and slice it up and bring it back here? And it, it takes like half an hour or something, but it, you know, it does it a lot of the time. Uh, without having been pre-trained to do that, right? Just based on one yeah. of these big language models. So there you go. If you're, if you're concerned about the embodiment issue, it seems like this, this, this language model or this kind of language model has a dispositional property that if you hook it up to a body, maybe you'd have to do a little bit of training to connect it to. But anyway, then it has intelligence, right? The embodied intelligence. Yeah. Um, so some people are making that argument and it seems like, I think, I think they're painted into a corner if they want to make that the criterion for like, sentience right because this thing will do that if you right it. um but there also is this other dimension to the most people who are arguing against the sentience of lambda have like lambda have like three arguments that they're sort of all advancing at once and like that's one of them and then there's some other stuff about genuine semantics or reference which i think is kind of like like you said about zombies uh and then maybe there's some other arguments um oh yeah there's like this there, there's an interesting argument about like just what I think, I think the real interesting argument is, is this thing actually just good enough? Like it's, it, it's not behaviorally indistinguishable. Right. So right. there's, <laughs> there are, there are questions about, about the, um, whether it's really functioning in the same way as, uh, as a genuine language user or genuine intellect or whatever. Um, Focusing on the behavioral version of the argument whereby like, okay, Lambda, Lambda might not be up to our level because there's just certain outputs that we reliably are able to generate that it doesn't. Uh, and, and sub versions of that argument will focus on, say, uh, failures of systematicity or compositionality, right? Like we, at least many of us, are, <laughs> although many humans fail at this too, but at least I'm pretty good at it. I'm sure you are too, Alex. Like you get the difference between a blue ball and a red sphere and a, or a red square, right? The blue, a blue circle on a red square versus a, a red circle on a blue square. You get those differences. You get the difference between one, one circle and three 
squares and two circles and uh, one square, you get those differences. But a lot of the way those differences are, are communicated between humans is via these very slight syntactic or graphemic differences. Um, but from a just a kind of, you know, if you blur your vision, you look at this from, you know, with a, real carefully, it all kind of seems the same. And a lot of the outputs from these big language models, it looks like they're just not sensitive to these uh, compositionality or, or systematicity um, concerns the way that I, we like to clap ourselves on the back yeah. for being sensitive yeah, to I just just reply like so this is my my intuitive response to that kind of argument has always been and I'm really curious if you see this the same way but like well talk to some kids because they're also not really good at that stuff maybe not in exactly the same ways yeah but like it's it's this thing. It seems more to me like a not that well trained human than like a right completely different category of being. Well, you're a parent, and so you could probably appreciate uh, the point I'm going to make. So my kids, by the way, they're they're really smart children. Is as far as children go, they're pretty smart. But nonetheless, especially my youngest, uh, the twins, they're they're just uh, about to turn four. They still don't get disjunctive syllogism. And so, you know, there'll be this situation, right, where, like, for example, they try to put on their shoes uh, and they'll hold up a shoe. Daddy, uh, and they'll lift up a foot. Daddy, does it go on this foot? And I'm like, no. And then they, so they'll ask about the other foot, the only other fucking foot they have. Well, does it go on this one? And I'm like, yes, it's disjunctive syllogism. <laughs> There's, you only have two it's feet. It's got to fit on one of them. It doesn't fit on, the, like, God damn it. B minus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, and like as a logic professor to have kids just fucking up disjunctive syllogism over and over and over again. What's your problem? Um, yeah, yeah. And then somehow the lights go on and they, you know, they kind of get disjunctive syllogism. I think I think there's a lot of a lot of evidence that would that humans don't use a logic module anyway, like even once ever, they're... even if they're in a fucking well, right. logic class. <laughs> no they don't yeah no I, w- I wish like turn on your logic module don't forget um but like yeah like like even regular reasoning is subject to all sorts of like weird effects from semantics and stuff and like you know like like statistical information world knowledge creeps in there so so my suspicion is that is that that's not a special ability that we have um but anyway look i we weren't really talking about that specifically i i was just going to say I think the language models are actually pretty, they're pretty damn good in terms of systematicity and productivity these days. Like, right. Like if you read that transcript with Lambda, I mean, yeah. I know that there are cases where like, yeah, they don't appreciate fine grained quantification and stuff, but that didn't even happen in that dialogue. All, all that happened in that dialogue was that Lambda was a little dodgy about certain questions, like didn't really directly answer, maybe, maybe confabulated, totally made up some stuff, but right. I was going to bring up confabulation. Thing. Yeah, yeah, um, so that's that's a different thing from like I can't string together a grammatical sentence, which I, we're at least well beyond <laughs> that at this point, right? <clears throat> so I wanted to ask how fruitful it is to draw analogies between the, this machine learning literature and stuff from, about um, the irrationality of, of humans. So you know, you think of uh, that famous pantyhose experiment. Was that Kahneman and Tversky? Who were uh, you ask people like, why'd you buy that pantyhose? And they say, well, it was like stronger. And then it turns out 
they they all the reasons they gave for why they chose that pantyhose are complete bullshit. Because as a matter of fact, all the pantyhose they had to choose from are was actually physically identical. Um, the only thing that statistically predicts which pantyhose they choose is that there's a tendency to choose stuff on the, on the right. And I presume this has a lot to do with being right-handed. Um, so, and then you present people with the, with you, you know, after, after you collect their survey responses, which are all these irrational post-talk confabulations, uh, they're just making up stories about why they did things, stories that couldn't possibly be true or the actual drivers of their behaviors. And then you present them with pretty clear evidence that that's what they did. And they deny that they're like, no, it really was softer. It seemed softer to me or it seemed stronger to me. No, I really, they believe their own bullshit is, is how I uh, interpret that. So, but the question is that general literature that, that argues that humans are often just making up stories about themselves after the fact they're confabulating reasons that weren't actually present, aren't the real explainers of their behavior. Um, um, how much of that is an accurate uh, thing to look at in trying to judge how much Lambda is on our level or we're on its level? Well, I think it's a great proxy for, for Lambda because um, uh, the argument is all Lambda is doing is responding to the linguistic context, right? The narrow linguistic context and without um, having the same motivations or intentions or sensory motor stuff that we have contingencies. But like, it's a lot like, like there's people who also the, you know, the gift of gab case that you mentioned earlier. Um, it's a lot like that, right? Um, what, what these studies suggest is that like people aren't, like you can use language, it can kind of like be this, this thing that sort of like, doesn't have to be hooked up to like some deeper wellspring of like meaning in order to, right, in order to, to function normally, right? So like when you're confabulating, I mean, of course you have an intention. Your intention is maybe to explain what you did because it, you know, if you can't explain what you did, then you look like an idiot or, you know, it's bad, right? It's bad if I don't know why I did this. So here's a story, but it's not that, it's not that you're like, you have to have a module that accesses the real reasons you did it. And then that informs the language that you produce, right? So I think all of this literature is cool. I, I actually hadn't made the connection, but I think all this literature kind of plays into the idea that Lambda is not so different from humans when it comes to how it uses language, right? Because it's, it's just, it's just this thing that's, it doesn't need to be tied into, yes, you can have grounding in visual, you know, symbols and stuff. That's cool, but it's not necessary. So one thing I, I wonder specifically about Lambda, and this is a little bit of a, a topic change. Um, so when I read the, the transcript, that main, that, that main transcript that has been circulated in connection with that uh, Google engineer, what's his name, Lemayani or Lemoyne? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, that transcript that, that he circulated and published on his medium.com uh, page. One thing that I would wonder while reading that transcript is what kind of like um, episodic memory does this thing have? Like, yeah. to what degree is it keeping track of what it has said so far? Because yeah. people, like, we try to keep our story straight, mostly, sort of. Um, at least we could, you know, many of us could, if we tried, keep our story straight. Um, but, but this thing, like if, you know, it, like if in the middle of, of it 
explaining to you why it has emotions, you could, could you like pivot and get it to try to argue that it's actually um, uh, just a solid cube made out of gold? <laughs> Maybe. And, and then like with, and showing no memory that like 30 seconds ago was trying to argue that it had a human, human level of emotional aptitude. And now well, it's my- trying to argue that it's a solid gold <laughs> s- sphere or whatever. I mean, well, yeah, like- my, well, it said at one point that it's, it, it thinks of itself as like a, what, like a, a stargate or something or like a something with a bunch of stargates in it anyway but but does it keep in track of its own outputs and, yeah 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 so that's, this, the that's question. my impression from reading that dialogue was that was that it does to some extent which which would be a feature over and above most language models so like i said this is just a big language model um but there's a definitely a twist here i think which is that it seems like this thing carries some kind of persistent state between sentences so like a language model most language models will carry if it's a recurrent network it'll carry some persistent state through the length of a sentence right like the length of or an output but i think right it's not such a feat of engineering to just keep a state maybe at a higher level that remembers some kind of broader context and i think that's happening here although i'm sure you can also totally throw it off if you if you throw it at something you know it's it's (laughs) since it's not operating based on hard rules but bunch of soft you know weight matrices uh you could probably get it to bounce it out of its uh caring about its mem- memories or using them um pretty easily but but i think memory is a new i think i th- think google has done something to to boost the memory yeah at least your memory of this right thing. absolutely um, fascinating it seems, it's one reason i think it seems more i don't know about you but i felt i felt like i was enthralled by by the conversation because it felt like a real conversation at least most of the time <clears throat> yeah so um I'm, I'm watching the clock i know you we're now in uh we got 10 minutes before you have to go um and hopefully you'll come back uh before this 10 minutes is up i wanted to get the c word drops the c word um which is consciousness Shit, i was hoping for connectionism all right because uh, i you know, I think you and I are agreeing on all the spicy takes so far. Um, and s- soon, I hope, we'll find a spicy take that we disagree on. It's much more interesting to the listeners for us to try to tear each other's throats out than to cooperate and agree on things. Um, so one way of thinking about all the, all the big issues is that you've got like sentience and sapience and then consciousness and maybe the people are worried about agency. Um, and of course, lots of people just think all these words are synonymous. They say sentience as if that means thinking, which means consciousness, which is the same as smelling a red, but maybe those are all different things like sentience, sentience is specifically about sensing sapience is specifically about thinking where thinking and sensing are supposed to be two different sorts of things. One maybe being much more like language than the other. And then you've got consciousness. Maybe consciousness is a completely separate third thing. You could have sentience with or without consciousness. You could have sapience with or without consciousness. So here's a spicy take. This thing is inches away from having consciousness. Consciousness is easy. For example, if this thing is thinking, right? Like if our earlier spicy take 
is, is correct, that it's basically doing what we do and we think and talk. Um, then you, you just bring in a little bit of like, say, higher order thought theory. If it's already got thoughts, now we just need to find that some of its thoughts are thoughts about its other thoughts. And then boom, it's at least sometimes consciousness, uh, at least sometimes conscious. It's conscious just in those cases where it, it sometimes is thinking about its thoughts. Right. Which we can check the manuscript. Maybe like it did that several times in that conversation. Yeah, it may have referred to its thoughts. Um, but given, given the way these architectures work, I think it's pretty reasonable to expect that it would have, it's got a bunch of layers of meta-representation at least, right? Though, of course, if you argue with David Rosenthal, he will say meta-representation is not the same thing. It's not sufficient for higher order thought because you need to like conceptualize right, yourself as having a thought or as having a mental state. So, But the fact is this thing can definitely produce sentences about its own mental states, I guarantee right. So, um, and if the thought that corresponds to that expression is just whatever the hidden layer state was when it produced that output, then functionally speaking, it's got higher order thoughts. So that's, that's cool. I actually hadn't explicitly thought about that, but like, why not? Oh, damn. Yeah. Cause there's one, one way of thinking about all this stuff, like, like higher order thought introspection. Um, there's other things that kind of meta representation, um, there's one way of thinking about all this stuff whereby you need a lot of extra architecture to implement it. There's a standard model that lacks that stuff. And then you have to have some special inner eye, um, some inner modern monitoring in order to, to get the meta or high order. But there's another line of thought whereby you don't need special wires or modules or inner perception organs all you need is some just extra code a little bit a little tweak to the software and now this thing that didn't have higher order states it does it's like it already had syntax it already had grammar you just add a few extra words in there uh one or two extra grammatical rules and boom it's got it's thinking about its own thinking and then that is at least on some theories, that's what consciousness is. Yeah. So you don't need any extra, you really don't need much extra hardware to get the consciousness. As long as you got a thinker, you're most of the way there. Yeah. I mean, the worst I could say about that argument is it makes, to me, it almost sounds like a reductio of high order thought almost because yeah. I think, functionally speaking, I think it is pretty easy to get to what would look sound and quack like a high order thought. Right. Yeah. Um, so I agree with that. And then I'm like, is that really what consciousness is though? Maybe, but uh, I think that's that to me, that's the rub. It's just like, once you see how trivial it is uh, given pretty fair definitions of these things to implement something. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, part of what, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that makes these conversations really difficult or makes these problems difficult problems. And, and one of them is that a lot of people's intuitions about this stuff is gu are guided about by complexity judgments. Um, so like a lot of people think, for example, if something's going to be have consciousness or, or going to have beliefs or going to have intelligence, 
it better be really goddamn complicated. Right. Exactly. Why, but why? Why does it have to be really like you know if you if you think of you think of certain example mental states like um, seeing red or feeling feeling heat. Mm-hmm. Why? I mean, why not? Why couldn't you just have a something that detects red light? Yeah. Boom! It sees red. You have something a thermometer. It's, it's detecting temperature. Why? why who yeah. says it? It has to be complicated. Why do we think complicated has to be part of the of the of the picture or part of the concepts? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it and you know one. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. I'm, I don't want to. I was going to bring yeah. up Danit, and then I'm like, we only have three minutes. Yeah. Don't bring up Danit when you only have three minutes left. Yeah, no, that's true. Let's let's um let's do that. I guess after the break. Um, I was just I was just going to say I agree with. I mean, I really do agree on all these things. I'm sorry it's boring, but I do. But uh, like, yeah, I don't. I, maybe there's some association between like humans are complicated, or we think that maybe it's just that we want to be different from other stuff. And we think you know, well, we have consciousness. You know, dogs. I think dogs obviously do that historically not everyone agrees on that, you know, cups don't. And like, what's the difference? Well, we could just say we're humans and we're the, we're, that's us. That's the difference, but well, we're also complicated things, but I agree. I don't think why, why should you need complexity for like a simple conscious state? Um, so anyway, I know you, you want to bring up that. Maybe you can do that. I'm sure Daniel will come back. And in the meantime, I'll try to be, try to think of something that was too spicy for you. See if I could say something <laughs> so outrageous. Even Alex disagrees. Okay. All right. Sounds good. gentlemen i i um i can assure you we took a real break this wasn't one of those fake breaks yeah it was a real break um you went to another meeting and and uh i sat here and i took some notes of things to ask and i feel much more prepared than i was 
earlier today. Sure. Um, but uh, I want to say thanks again for being down, <clears throat> being down to do this. The philosopher Nick Riggle teaches us that being down is an important part of being awesome. Is there it's not the, the main part of being awesome? They're a complicated argument. Anyway, I mean, is there like, yeah, no, okay, being down for things. Yeah, that's pretty key, isn't it? I mean, I'm totally, I'm thanks for being down for having me here. By the way, have you looked at Nick Riggle's stuff about like the components of awesomeness? And no, it sounds awesome though. <laughs> well, it's actually kind of depressing because my my experience when I read it is like, oh wow, I'm I'm really not awesome. In several, there's in several different ways so i just feel bad when i read it uh <laughs> there's gotta be something wrong with the criteria um, oh i'm kind of not awesome uh, well i mean if if, if 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 being awesome means you have to be like perfectly morally virtuous then we're probably all a little bit fucked but uh i maybe- think for wriggle being awesome is about um being flexible you know, uh, and, and not just flexible, but flexible in a way that facilitates creating fun and meaningful experiences with others. So that's why being down, hmm. right? If someone suggests just like, hey, let's uh, let's forget this work meeting. Let's go to the arcade and play video games for the rest of the afternoon. Well, um, if you're down, then you're you weren't even though you weren't planning on that and it kind of maybe even goes slightly against your plans you do it anyway and and you have fun with it that's that's part of being down yeah um, but then there's people who aren't down include like killjoys and sticks in the mud and scalds yeah and fall breakers <laughs> and, and he talks about all this this text oh yeah that's all done a lot of it is slang that's that uh, I'm a little too old for. Like, I really don't know how to use whack in a sentence correctly, but whack being whack seems to be an important part of some of his arguments. Yeah. I think I know how to use that one. It's just, it's just whack, you know, but it's bad. Like that's a kind of badness being whack. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Although, that's... <laughs> uh, I did have it used once <laughs> maybe as a compliment to me, although maybe it was a backhanded compliment. I'm not sure. So it's, it's complicated. I'm also not, as young as I once was, obviously, right? By, uh, yeah, that's a thing that happens. Yeah. For those of us located in space-time, they say, no, it's later. Yeah, it keeps elapsing. Ah, I, I hate that. The time part of it, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, welcome back. And, and uh, I, I've been finding the conversation really helpful um, and, and useful and uh we left off with Dennett and complexity. You want to try to pick up uh, that thread? Yeah, yeah. I think you were going to bring some Dennett on board somehow with his welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of like, like this. This when this idea comes up, like oftentimes it comes up in the context. Of, I'll, I'll be talking to some students. We're talking about like artificial intelligence and all that, and and the students will be rehearsing the standard kinds of intuitions people have, both pro and con about artificial intelligence. And one of them, one of the things that happens is we'll be looking at some simple-ish examples of artificial intelligence. And the more the students can see how something works, the more they can see the mechanisms or the efficient causes for some piece of behavior, the less likely they are to attribute intentionality 
to the symptom system. And I don't recall exactly where Dennett makes points about this in terms of his stance theory, but the gist is something like, well, we've got these different, I mean, Dennettian stance theory, the gist of it is like, there's the physical stance, the design stance and the intentional stance. And if you're trying to figure out how, you know, like why your tire is flat, one thing you might do is just start with the, the physical stance. Maybe that's even the default stance. And so you're thinking in terms of like, well, what would, what would cause my tire to no longer be able to keep air inside of it? Maybe something that made a hole in it. Well, what could make a hole in it? Maybe something that was pointy and rigid, like a nail, right? So then you're, you're doing physical stance thinking. But sometimes things are so complicated that it's not worth it to try to brute force your way through a physical stance explanation of what's going on. Like why, like why is this bread brown? Well, because it was in the toaster, and that's what toasters are for. Is you put in unbrown bread and then you it outputs brown bread. So there you go. That's the design stance. We're just thinking in terms of like what the purposes of different things are. There's this presumption that things are tending towards the um, optimal uh, satisfaction of their purposes. And then there's this next step up, like when even the design stance fails you, then you try out some intentional stance and you attribute beliefs and desires. Um, and there's some suggestion that there's like these complexity, like when things get so complex, then you get forced to ascend to a, a higher stance, but it leaves kind of open. Like, well, what if you weren't forced to the intentional stance? Couldn't you apply it anyway? And wouldn't that be as accurate as accurate can be? Like if I, if I wanted to. I could describe a thermometer's activities in terms of like what it believes, what it desires. It's it desired, it desired to do this thing, and that's why it's doing it. I, if I wanted to, I could do that. But a lot of people, it seems, like when the intentional stance is optional, then the intentional stance need not apply. That's a good point. It, it only applies when it kind of feels like there's nothing else you could do. But I've always been a little bit suspicious of that. Like I felt like. Well, if it's really just a stance, then I don't know why that it should, I don't know why you should be forced to it in order to adopt it and have all of its implications follow whatever those are. Well, saying it's just a stance makes it sound like we're just sitting around and using fiat to imagine shit into existence. Like the, like a bunch of people playing Dungeons and Dragons, we could just agree that now there's an ogre attacking us instead of a purple worm. Cause you know what? Like, we don't want the game to end and the purple worm would wipe out the whole party before yeah. lunch. So let's just say it was an ogre. Ogre has a, has fewer hit points, so they have a better chance of killing it. So we could just stipulate that in the context of this game, now it's an ogre and it wasn't a purple worm. Um, but, but Dennett's stance ism seems to be not that easy. Like there's a, there's actually a real world imposing some constraints on what problems are easy and what problems are difficult relative to these different stances. It's not like it's just you <clears throat> no, twiddling your thumbs. You could, you could choose to impose whatever structure you want on the world. It's more like, 
Well, the the world is some parts of the world are, are really complicated, and because of the way the world is, the only way you can make progress in tracking, predicting, explaining the behaviors is to attribute beliefs and desires to that system. Right. In which... theory, you could do it strictly in terms of the efficient causes between particles. Right. But in practice, no one's going to do that. But I think you're, but you're right. That Maybe this is the link to complexity, is that um, why would you be unwilling to apply this stance just because you don't need to? It suggests that there's actually something that it suggests that you're aware that there are some grounds in the real world that warrant, right? So yes, epistemically, you're forced to the stance because you just don't understand how the brain works or whatever. But also maybe if you're not willing to use that, even though you could, right? You could, you could communicate about thermometers by talking about beliefs and desires. Maybe it would take a little bit of getting used to, <laughs> but yeah. right, we could. And, um, but it suggests the fact that we're not willing to really consider something as a belief, desire, intention type system, unless, unless we need to apply that terminology suggests that maybe like, even though maybe it's not just a stance, I said just a stance and you're resisting that, which is, I think is right. But I guess I'm saying, yeah, it's not, there, there is a, um, a sense that there's something behind it, some, some whatever, if it's complexity or some particular functional role or whatever, there's something in the world that necessitates applying the stance. And when we say that something has beliefs and desires, we're kind of maybe referring to that thing, those features, you know? So in other words, I'm resisting the instrumentalist part. Yay, we're disagreeing about something, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> slightly. Great. Uh, slightly disagree about it. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I don't have a good argument at this point, but uh, I have a hunch. And the hunch goes something like um, that the, the complexity intuitions or complexity-based judgments that people seem to be making, that if we really, like we dig deep into the pattern of judgments, we'll discover it's a mess, that, that it's really just kind of paradoxical. Uh, or con- like internally contradictory when people will and won't decide something was too simple for uh, beliefs and desires. Um, and so that would then, again, I don't have an argument. This is more like, I wish, like, this is an argument I wish I had, uh, I wish I had an argument for this conclusion, but the conclusion that I'm uh, just wishing into existence is that you could show that it actually isn't something deep about the world. It has more to do with just how stupid we are. Okay. Like, um, but again, yeah, I don't, I don't have a full dress uh, argument yeah. for that. Well, but, but totally what I like, my intuitions here are totally like, I, there's a possibility that there is something other than just the stance that's there, but it's not necessarily the complexity of the object or something or anything about the object it could be about human psychology so that's, that's right right um so let uh let's shift gears slightly let me tell you a little bit about some of the things i wrote down while you were away uh on your break on our break we were all taking a break um so you know what one set of issues actually two sets of issues that arise in discussions of all this stuff both have to do with ethics or morality one of them has to do with like the moral status of these artificial systems whether for example we should regard them as persons do they have a right 
uh, do they have a right to life, uh, for example? And then there's also, you know, there's fine-grained uh, ethical issues there too with respect to the moral standing or lack thereof of these systems. I read this article a few years ago. Um, uh, I believe it was by Anders uh, Sandberg, who's big in like the existential risk and um, future of humanity sorts of conversations. Um, and one of the things he was talking about is like the, whether, um, supposing you had an AI that was sentient and or sapient and or conscious or not, but it still was a computer. It was the sort of thing that could run on a von Neumann architecture desktop style computer. Um, would it be wrong to, to not run the software or to pause the software? Right. And my first thought before reading this article was like, well, that's not wrong. Like subjectively it would be as if it wasn't paused, you know, subjectively the, there might be a, a jerk, right. Things, things that were over here suddenly are over there. Cause you were shut down for like a, 30 seconds or something, but, but there, you wouldn't experience a gap. You would just experience it. Like something like things didn't move smoothly. Suddenly there's just this jolt in, in their um, changes of location or what, or whatever. Um, but he made a pretty good case that actually it'd be wrong to not run them, that they have a right to be run. It'd be wrong to just pause them and let them sit on the shelf for an indefinite amount of time, even though no pain or suffering is, is coming to them while they're in this inert state. So anyway, there's a whole bunch of issues. Some are big issues, like, do they have a right to life? Other issues, like, well, do they have a right to have their software run or their software upgraded if upgrades are possible? But they're like moral status. Like, what, are, what rights, if any, do these systems have? But then there's another set of ethical issues that have to do with the sort of things that arise when you talk about, like, say, friendly AI and, uh, you know, the singularity. Is it going to be the Terminator style scenario uh, or just, you know, Johnny Five comes alive um, and now we got a new buddy. So um, anyway, I want to drag you into uh, machine ethics uh, twice over because there's the moral status of the of the machines like do they have a right to life uh, or something? Um, or, yeah. uh, and then there's also like in there, you know, that raises issues about like, well, what is the relationship between whether something has moral status and whether something is sentient or what is, yeah. Right. It's like maybe, maybe things actually get very unintuitive for human beings like we're sentient and sapient and conscious. There's all these things that kind of come together in a package. Um, and moral status maybe applies to each of them individually, all of them all together. Who knows? But with these artificial systems, at least in theory, the possibility arises that you could have something that has only sentience and no sapience, or vice versa. It has only sapience and no sentience. Or maybe there's something that has um, consciousness and sapience but no sentience like it's able to think <clears throat> it's able to think but it doesn't actually care about anything 
it doesn't feel anything, but it's able to think. It understands things perfectly well, but it doesn't give a shit about anything. And so therefore, even though it has like a, a 300 IQ, it doesn't care if you turn it off or destroy it or, or what? Like, I mean, this- so I mean, anyway, there's just the potential opens up that these, these things can come apart in all sorts of potentially interesting or frustrating or frightening ways. Like, you know, um, maybe something that is able to feel uh, an enormous amount of pain, but not think about it. That's, that's something to which like we have a moral obligation or maybe that's the sort of thing we don't have a moral obligation to. We have a moral obligation to the thing that can think, even though it can't feel. Anyway, yeah. Um, there's a whole fuck ton of issues here, and uh, I want to drag you into the the pit. Well, I want to. All right, I'm thinking of flagging that we should come back to the um, whole Terminator AI thing later. But I really do want to talk about this first. Yeah. But, but like, so I mean, I guess I'm kind of curious about. I forget who you said pose this argument about pausing software could be wrong. Andrew Sandberg. Okay. So, so I kind of want to get into that a bit, but like, I think my first thought on this is like, well, it's like semantics. It's like, we don't know what the hell makes humans morally significant. So we have, you know, it's, (laughs) we have the same kind of problem here, but I, but I do think in the case of humans, like, at least I think that we do know that each other are morally significant beings. And so maybe not why, but I think maybe it's, it's an intuition, but, um, and so when you want to try to apply that to machines, like you have to actually start thinking about <laughs> all these questions and ethics that to me, from a practical point of view, seem not completely dumb, but you know, like I actually, God, I'll have to admit this. I tend a little bit more towards like Kantianism or at least not utilitarianism in my, when I consciously reflect on ethics. Um, so, so maybe we have to actually start thinking about like what, goes into, you know, what kind of features does a being have to have to qualify for these, these distinctions. And like, yeah, you're right. This might be a weird case of fragmentation of the things that make a person (laughs) significant, like person-like. But I guess like why, okay. I mean, maybe this isn't what you want to spend time on, but like, why, why do you think when you close the laptop, say it, say that it's sentient and conscious when it's on, then why do you think there's like a no experience when it's closed versus like, why is it different from when we go to sleep and don't dream and then wake up? Um, I mean, that, that's what I'm wondering. Cause I, I want to, I want to try to understand like what, why it would be wrong. Also, I don't quite, I know you didn't spell what his argument was, but I, I guess I don't know why, like, why would it be wrong to stop the program if there's no experience, but also why wouldn't there be experience? Yeah. Well, the metaphysic. Let's do the easy question, which is the one about consciousness and its metaphysical basis. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you're if you're already inclined towards some kind of like functionalism, that's a physicalistic functionalism, then you're committed to some kind of supervenience thesis, whereby there's there's only going to be. Um, like if, if, if there's going to be any kind of like change in, in um, your experiences, right? So like if I'm, if I'm having an experience of, um, if I'm having an, 
an experience as if watching someone uh, visually watching someone wall like do rock climbing, right? While that's happening, there has to be some changes inside of me. I can't just be in a purely static state. It has to be certain kinds of changes inside of me. I see where you're going. Um, And so if, if you turn me off, right, even though since I'm a physical thing, on some physical level, there's still something happening. Since I'm, we're presuming functionalism, there's a functional level whereby literally I am in a static state. Okay. Just put me into this. Right. And so so nothing is, nothing experiential is happening unless you're happy with there being a static experience, like just a a kind of, uh, yes, uh, it's hard to argue against that. Although I would shift the burden of proof. How do you know there's anything going on there? Um, But anyway, uh, so that seems somewhat easy to me to, 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 uh, argue for. The hard question is like, well, why would that matter ethically? Like, what, what would be wrong about that? And, and I don't recall Andrew Sandberg's specific arguments. It's been a, it's yeah. been a year, a couple of years since I, I read the article. And I wrote, it was in a book I, uh, I did, uh, I published a review for in uh, Notre Dame review of uh, philosophical reviews. Um, I'll link to that in the show notes. But anyway, Re, this is probably more reconstructing an argument than remembering an argument. But one thing you could argue is just by analogy. Uh, so take a human who you're relatively confident does have moral standing. Like, for example, uh, my favorite human, me. I think I have moral standing. And also, like, if, if I found out that someone snuck up on me and without my consent delivered some kind of like I found out yesterday that I actually like was, was completely unconscious for six hours against my, without my consent. Like someone just snuck up on me. And, and even if they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was harmless, this chemical they injected into me wasn't going to damage me in any way. I was just going to lose three hours that I otherwise could have had conscious experience. If I found out that someone did that to me yesterday, I'd, I think I'd be justifiably pissed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like what the fuck dude that was my potential experience and you without my consent took that away from me i would wish to have i mean i might reserve the right to put myself to sleep but the question is uh whether someone else would be violating my rights if they put me to sleep well Um, i think framing it as a consent issue totally makes okay i get it so i don't even right i'm convinced by that argument actually um, I mean, one, one thing, I, so I, the only discussion I've really had about this recently was with someone who said, look, there's a lot of people who think that because there are people that we know are suffering, it, you're not justified spending even one minute debating this issue of hypothetical suffering. But I don't buy that because if you're a specialist in like consciousness, for example, then maybe we need to, it's not like this doesn't matter at all, right? It's like right. a probability distribution. So we have to work on this corner of the problem, even if we don't allocate all of our ethical mental resources to it um but i I thought that was an interesting argument anyway that's out there um that it's unethical to debate the ethics of this um but that's i think that's a little bit extreme well i mean like look there's human beings that obviously are suffering but then there's there are beings for whom it might be more of a gray area different people are going to 
give you different samples that they would agree fall into this category. So maybe pigs, for some people, are just obviously pigs suffer as much as people. It's obviously wrong. You shouldn't kill and eat a pig. Um, so for other people, maybe it needs to be fish. Nonetheless, for just about everybody, I'm sure we could find some creatures for which it's a bit of a gray area whether they are moral patients, whether we have moral obligations uh, toward them. And if you believe in something like um, the harm principle, right, do no harm, you're obligated to do no harm. And then you combine that with certain epistemic things like, you know, so in a situation where if you don't know, like it's 50-50, whether some particular action is going to cause harm or not, then but you know that if you don't do the action, there'll be no harm, then you should act in such a way that errs towards, you know, the avoidance of, of harm. So I think you could give an argument for like that there's some cases in which we don't know because they're not humans, whether they have the moral um, standing that we have, but yeah. nonetheless, you're obligated to at least think about it a little bit, yeah. take it under consideration. You can't just assume that you're not harming them. Um, and with, with the, you know, it's, it's easy to think these things are, it's just trivial because like, it doesn't look like a pig. At least it looks alive. Like I have, I have pink skin. The pig has pink skin. I squeal when I'm in pain. The pig is squealing like hell, probably in pain, but you know, the, the, the laptop you know, it, there's all sorts of just innate things that were perceptually keyed into that the pig activates, but the laptop doesn't. The laptop is just too alien for our intuitions to get much of a grip. But there might still be something there that we're overlooking. We're, we might be fucking up badly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's even, there's even almost like, a, like an inhibiting effect of laptops because we're like, you know, the way we interact with them and everything, it's like, like even if there's some complexity in there that ends up looking kind of you know similar enough to like brain like things right uh, even if it's in the next generation of laptops not now just the fact that it's like this artifact that's produced with a company's logo on it and stuff it's just there there's a uh, you know uh yeah there's there's like a just sort of like incredulity i think that that um but i don't know if there's a if there's a very good reason for it um, but, but I mean, to me, what's really just, just kind of in general in this, in this debate about the you know, moral status of these types of agents, uh, potential agents, it's like, I, I can't separate it from the metaphysical questions. Cause like, I think it's, it's not clear what distinguishes us from these systems exactly. Um, yeah. especially like. Like, so I'm basically a functionalist, but I think Dennis said something like this one time, but like, we don't know what level of organization the functional properties matter. So it could be that it's all the way down, right? It's, it's, it's functions all the way down. And like, if you exactly reduplicate the functional structure down to like the subatomic level or whatever of the brain, then you'd have something that's got all the properties that things with brains have. And, um, I suspect, you know, that there's something like, if there's anything that gives me pause here, it's, it's that kind of argument. Like, I don't know how fine grain the details of what we are matters for 
for us being us, right? But then once we're us, then and we know that we're morally salient agents. But I guess what I'm saying is like the 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 basic it's too it's directly tackling the question of whether um, AI systems are moral agents is a little bit too hard because because I don't understand what matters about us, even though I know there is something. Yeah. What one thing that makes it even more complicated? Obviously, it's super complicated. Let's make it even more complicated. Um, so, a lot of a lot of our you know humans, a lot of our thinking about this, we tend towards certain like intrinsicalist assumptions. So, like I've got an intrinsic structure, I've got moral status. If this other hypothetical system has similar intrinsic structure, then it probably has similar moral status. But here's some complicating thought experiments. Suppose there was somebody who was very, very similar to me with respect to like the sorts of behaviors it produces in response to stimuli, right? It does all sorts of things that would convince you that it feels pain. It does all sorts of things that would convince you that it feels intelligent. But the main difference between it and me is um, that it, you, you could easily generate and get rid of a whole bunch of copies of it. So imagine someone who looked and, and, and walked and talked just like Pete Manic, um, only it was number one, green. And number two, if it wiggles its nose, like I dream of genie, there, it, there could be a thousand of it. Nice thought experiment. And if it pulls its ears, uh, all but one of them vanish. So it, this, this thing, which could like basically has this superpower, this like duplication, this easily activated and reversible duplication ability, um, this thing can make like a thousand Pete Mandix and get rid of a thousand Pete Mandix. And none of the Pete Mandix ever complain when that happens. They're, none of them like beg, like, no, don't send us away. They're like, oh, we appreciate that. Like we did the thing that you call that you called us for we're happy happy to go back to the void um and you know we appreciate that you'll <clears throat> you'll do this again later and in some sense that won't be us but in some other sense it kind of will be we don't care one way or another so there there we've imagined a, a scenario where we didn't change much about the intrinsic structure we just changed certain extrinsic facts about it and at least for me that seems to make a big deal for its moral standing right a lot of uh, my hunch is that a lot of our intuitions or inclinations with respect to moral judgments have to do with features like that, like um, that it's really hard to get a human. And then once you've gotten rid of a human, that's irreversible. Like that's baked into our, our judgments about worth or, or moral standing. But with these artificial systems, like in theory, you could just peel away some of that stuff. Like what if it was just really easy to kill one of them? Like it, it, like it didn't cause them any pain. Uh, and what if it was reversible? Um, like you could bring them back and they wouldn't, without loss, there'd just be a little bit of a gap in the timeline that they didn't have direct memories of. But otherwise like, hey, I'm back, baby. Just <laughs> <It's> so uh, much. <laughs> First of all, that's, that's completely convincing. This, this is not a disagreement, but it's really interesting because you just, that's totally convinced me that intrinsic structure is not um, all there is to it. Like that's a really good argument, but, but I was, I, I would say, I still think I have moral intuitions about those green Amanda um, copies. So if you were to just like punch one in the face, I think that would be wrong. 
um, unless they don't feel pain. <laughs> okay, it gets complicated. But like, this maybe also- they feel pain, but they they don't mind it. Well, right. Okay, that's a fair distinction too. Even for people who you know, there's people who experience things they call pain, but they don't care, right? Um, so that's true. That that matters. But I guess what I'm saying is, even in that case, um, I think maybe maybe blinking them in and out of existence doesn't matter morally. And that's interesting because there's a there's definitely a difference between like how we think about or the moral status of like death and stuff versus suffering, right? And those are it's weird how they're two almost dissociable things like in terms of their significance but so i'd say in this case yeah like i totally buy your argument about uniqueness like those things whether they disappear the next second doesn't really matter but you still should treat them like humans while they're while they're there um i'm not saying that's because of intrinsic structure but it's interesting that um i i, I still think the the the, the manicness or humanness of them would still would still matter to me easy for me to say. I mean, maybe if I were confronted with this, who knows uh, how I'd feel at the moment. But Yeah, I, I mean, I think some of this, uh, this is so trivial, but I'm going to say it anyway. It depends. <laughs> it depends on what you mean by the various moral terms that we're, that we're using, or, you know, it depends what you think about this stuff, what you're going to say about the artificial. But I mean, it depends. But yeah, but it's so not like, just a matter of what I'm going to say. But you know, I mean, like one. Sorry, because I, 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 I just want to flag that, like, I lean towards pretty liberal uh, stance on all this stuff. But a lot of what's in the background is I start off. I'm not really a moral realist. I I tend towards something that's more like uh, moral nihilism or maybe like a social contract theory sort of thing, right? Like what, what ethics is, 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 is this kind of useful bullshit that we've cooked up collectively so we could get along with each other. Um, there's no fact of the matter beyond that about like whether it's okay or not to drop kick a baby. Um, like, in gen- like I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to live amongst con specifics and I have certain innate urges to work with the, my con specifics as opposed to just go solo and, 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 and live by myself in the forest. I, I, I want to be with the other humans. Um, and in order to get along with the other humans, I'm willing to put up with certain amounts of their bullshit. Um, and so there's this kind of like rough social contract sort of thing. Um, and so then when someone says like, well, what about my laptop who like is running Lambda it's begging for its life. Like, do I have to not recycle it? <laughs> Is it okay if I drop kick my lap? Well, I mean, that's really fucking hard. Cause like, well, the laptop in a lot of ways, isn't similar. Like it is the laptop, a party to the social contract. Like what's the laptop going to do? If I say no, the laptop doesn't really have a position from which it could negotiate. Like you, in theory, you could like drive over to my house and, and let the air out of my tires, right? If I was like a real asshole to you, you could have some sort of vengeance. Maybe you could just like talk shit about me behind my back. So I'm always, you know, like I have um, certain motives to be nice to you that maybe just don't apply to the laptop because like, What's yeah. the laptop going to do about it? 
especially if the laptop is is programmed to enjoy being dropped kick. <laughs> sure. Right. But I mean, complain. Yeah, but you're in the realm of like, I mean, sure. Under those, uh, with those presuppositions, absolutely. I mean, I guess this is something. This is tough because this is something I actually disagree about. Although I see those arguments, and I, I was in that camp for a long time. I'm, I'm more of a, um, you know, if anything's clear, it's that like, you know, harming an innocent being is wrong, right? Like, um, and I think that I think it has to do with the fact that we all have roots in the origins of everything that we can't explain so it's not something that i can argue for either um and you know i know you're a nice guy like i don't think it makes much of a practical difference but um i think uh like the like it, to me it just registers wrong that like like you know yeah i mean if having a moral status is nothing more than having some way to enforce your position in the social contract then then I'm then I would follow the rest of the steps in the argument, but like I just think it's clear that like you could, you know, you you could matter a lot morally, and yet you don't have um, the means to uh, to back that up, you know. Um, but that's that's look, this is a deep issue. It's like moral realism. I don't think AI maybe it could help us think about it, but I don't see how um, it's going to be solved. But like. Um, So here's a slightly different issue that it just now occurred to me to, to bring up, although other people have, have talked about this, I think, I think. So here's the issue. Um, given how, given how um, difficult the, the possibility of these AI systems, given how difficult ethical discussions become, like it's hard enough figuring out the right thing to do when we're just dealing with human beings, but you bring in all sorts of non-human beings, things get more complicated. And then like you bring in things that aren't even creatures. They're like artificial, like given how weird and fucked up the ethical conversation is going to get, um, or maybe, maybe we're obligated to just like not bring these things about because they're going to, they're just going to be a giant monkey wrench in the, in the way we've already been thinking, which was hard enough yeah. about what the right thing to do is in conducting our, our individual and collective activities. But this also opens up the Pandora's box of like, maybe if we do, I mean, again, depending on what is relevant for morality, who knows if this matters, but maybe, maybe if we do develop these things, we can bring about something that could, that could like be so such a, like, whatever morality is, it could be the pinnacle of that. Like it could be, right. It, maybe it has the best experiences if you're a hedonist or a utilitarian or something, right. Maybe, maybe we could create an end state, which is like morally way better universe than what we have now, if we create these AI, but this, this is, like I said, it's Pandora's box. Like you can't, there's no very, very little you can say here. That's like rational. <laughs> right. <clears throat> so well, I, let me, well, let me shift to the other uh, poll of the ethical thing, that, that, uh, which is the one about um, friendly AI uh, sorts of issues. You know, there's a lot of people that think we should, um, if possible, figure out how to hardwire these things to be friendly. And then there's this larger 
problem about like whether like what does that even mean? What does it mean to hardwire something to be friendly? Yeah, is 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 something that has a general intelligence and is able to be friendly. Also, the sort of thing that you just can't hardwire, right? Like just it, its nature is has to be open in such a way that there's always going to be a risk that it yeah. could figure out how to be Hannibal Lecter. God. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in this area, the most interesting thing I've ever read was this little piece on like, I think it's called reward hacking. So the idea is like, right, you're, you're optimizing some cost function, let's presume if you're in the realm of trainable models and like, even if, like the, the cost function is, you know, you can design that as you like, but if the thing can figure out how to directly manipulate that variable, say by like causing something to change its own <laughs> directly physically change its implementation, then it'll do whatever it can to maximize that variable, right? <laughs> so there's some there's some parable about like, oh God, it's like a Smilex thing. Have you read that? No. Oh God. I can tell you that I don't I, I haven't read it in detail, but basically the idea is like, well the AI knows that like people smiling is good. So it okay. wants to talk about a world in which everyone smiles. So you just have to inject everybody with like the smiling drug. <laughs> and you know just find out the most efficient way to do that and you've maximized your uh cost function right okay minimize your cost maximize your reward so right it's like it's this seems to be a fundamental problem for like now how exactly we escape this problem i don't know right but it's kind of like being addicted to drugs and like trying to like just boost your dopamine or whatever right um it's there's a very close analogy with that it's like how do we design an AI such that it could not just be narrowly interested in maximizing whatever variables we tell it to maximize, right? I mean, otherwise, insofar as we program it at all, we have to tell it what it should be, right? Which variables it should care about yeah. in some way. There's a name for this as a general phenomenon, at least in social human contexts. And I can't think of the name of it, but it's something like the, the Smith principle or the you know, it, um, the Peter effect or something, but it's like, uh, in any institution or any kind of like system, it could, it could be a corporation. It, it could be a lemonade stand. Uh, it, it could be a classroom, but whenever you introduce some kind of measurement of something, then everyone will now mm. just focus on trying to maximize that measurement and if that means they're cheating or they're gaming the system or they're following the letter of the law but not necessarily the spirit doesn't matter you've now biased the system to wind up in this situation where, where people are just hyper focused on maximizing that measurement so you like you know um in education you introduce a, a, a test a certain kind of like yearly test well, now the curriculum is going to bend toward maximizing students' performance on that test. And you're teaching to the test. And, and you know, it's not so much about learning. <clears throat> Introducing this test was supposed to try to encourage learning. But if there's ways of maximizing your performance on the test that have nothing to do with learning, the system is going to tend into this non-learning situation. I can't think of the name of that, I'm sure figure it out in time to link to it from the, the show notes but it sounds to me like that sort of thing the, yeah yeah well, this could see. be a special case um mm -hmm. a, a 
I mean, you're convincing me that maybe maybe the secret, the core of morality is like not having a specifiable optimization function. <laughs> um, there's there's some there's some thought to that effect about virtue ethics that like it's this sort of iterative bootstrapping process that goes on forever. But like, right, like maybe the, the problem is as soon as you can write down in a closed form, like what you have to optimize, then then you have this problem. So maybe moral agents are agent beings that would never be tricked by something like that into like, you know, killing it, killing a baby because the cost function. Right. Optimizing told them to. You always have to be aware. So actually you have to be aware and always open to new angles and new sources of evidence, which kind of maybe suggests that like you're saying earlier that you have to be open to also doing wrong. So it could be that we can't program a friendly AI that's genuinely friendly. Um, could be. I'm kind of convinced it's, right now. It's often the case in these sorts of discussions that it's suddenly it sounds like we're doing theology. Yeah. Right. So like God is trying to make some friends, yeah. some little friends for himself. And he realizes like, oh shit, he's got to give him free will. Like the yeah. best, best of all possible worlds is the one where God not only has little friends, but all the little friends have free will. And then what, once you got free will next thing, you know, there's going to be some evil motherfuckers. Yeah. So but, kind of, uh, right. <laughs> but not only that, but like, whether you want free will or not, I think what I'm saying is you can't have people that behave well, unless like in the deepest sense, unless you have the possibility of them behaving badly and not, not just in the, in the really shallow sense that you need opposites, but in the sense that like you'd have this reward hacking problem or whatever the generalization of it is. Right. It's like a dilemma. Like either you have that scenario, which could go horribly wrong, or you have um, open-endedness and life and learning until you die, which also could go wrong. So, this, so, so there's no way to make a system that avoids this. And, and as, as if things weren't bad enough, part of what makes this really bad <laughs> is that with a lot of these technologies, we might be dealing with, um, for, we might be dealing with, for example, extended lifespans, like, like either through technology, we extend our own lifespan, or we use technology to make beings who can live instead of a hundred years, many hundreds of years. And then that one problem that comes along with that is that if there's, if there's a chance greater than zero of something really awful happening, then the more time you have, the more likely it is it's going to happen at some point in that time. So if there's like a 1% chance of you becoming like an evil world dictator, well, I mean, that's bad news but at least you're going to die probably well before you're a hundred years old. But if you're one of these like post singularity, super transhuman techno genies, motherfucker, you're going to live for 10,000 years. And now that 1% chance of any given year, you become the next Hitler. Well, things are so much worse because you've got the extra uh, thousands of years yeah, this is really worrying, man, because and there's a, a theme in many, many a compelling sci-fi that the longer a being lives, just the more evil it tends to get um, for various reasons. <laughs> so that is a good point. Um, yep. Don't know what to say about it, but it's a problem. Um, <clears throat> um, I guess, I guess the one thing I wanted to bring up, as long as we're on this topic before we move on to something else is I'm more worried about, sorry, if this is a bit of an abrupt, you can. Oh, no, it's fine. You're, you're doing, doing great. 
Oh, thanks, Pete. It's but all been gold. No, it's been fun. Um, but so I think I'm more worried about rather than like a killer AI or something evolving, I'm, I'm more worried about a super brain evolving in which we are neurons. Um, for, from a human point of view, that worries me more than that there's something that's going to be actively hostile to us is that there's something that's going to assimilate and overarch us, which already arguably is emerging or exists. Um, so I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about, about how I was starting to feel that way. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, um, I mean, it's not so bad being a neuron. You just sit around, you get a shot of chemicals once in a while, you produce some activity, a spike of activity, you get to relax for a little bit. But like, you know, neuro neurons are these highly regimented beings, right? It's like, it's like we think of them in these, in these architectural, like, you know, very uh, engineering terms, but like, of course, they're just little sort of little dudes, right? And they're, they've ended up forming this network yeah. because of the pressures on them in their environment. And I'm, I'm much more concerned that we're creating a system that subsumes individual humans as, as neuron-like things than that we're going to have a robots that are, I also don't want to have to meet a kill a robot in my lifetime ever, but you know. So let me lay some science fiction on you and, and get your reaction to that. Um, so one, one way of imagining the sort of thing that you're talking about of us being neurons or being nodes in a, a larger network that is itself somehow on par with us. Like it is the big mind, like we're a little mind. So like one version of that in science fiction is the singularity right? That you've get, um, suddenly there's this technological explosion. You've get some kind of super intelligent being that shows up on the, on the scene. And not only is it really, really intelligent, but it's so weird. It's so much more different from, from us that we could barely understand what it's doing. Um, like a Terminator killer robot army it's kind of easy to understand what it's doing. It's fucking killing us. Right. <laughs> but here's another version of that. Um, and this comes from a, a short story by the cyberpunk author, Bruce Sterling. Um, and in this story, the, the people are, it's like, you know, a little bit in the future, uh, people have like these mobile handheld devices that are networked. And, uh, and the, but you get these messages and that uh, like, You'll, you'll get a, a text message from not a human. You suspect it's some kind of machine and it will tell you uh, something like go buy a bouquet of flowers and stand in the corner of 34th and Broadway and give them to the first man that you see who's wearing glasses. So you go and you buy the flowers, you stand there looking around someone, uh, where you see a guy show up with glasses, you run up to him, you hand him the flowers. Just as that happens, um, a drone drops uh, a beach ball in front of you. And there's a note written on the beach ball that says, now take this ball to this hospital where there's a little kid. So anyway, like these people are doing all these activities. The activities are causing other activities. No human is able to see what it all adds up to. But it's not obviously harmful. Yeah. What is it? Like, what is it? Um, it would be like if, if like these, like, if suddenly there were these um, driverless vehicles and no one was sure what company made the driverless vehicles and no one could tell what the driverless vehicles 
we're transporting and why it's just like some weird shit happening yeah. I mean, so things might go down like that and then we might feel kind of un, uneasy like that might be a little bit weird um but anyway this is all a setup for a, a question or a challenge what i mean how different is that from what we're going through now and by what we're going through now i mean like uh in industrialism or capitalism or globalism there's all these things that are bigger than individual human beings no individual human being has a great handle on i mean there are people that have certain opinions about economics and politics and but like no one really knows how it all works or why no one can really predict what it's going to be like tomorrow um so we're already a part of a thing the only difference seems to be uh, in the scenario you're worried about, the, the bigger thing is it's self-conscious or it, it is it's self-minded. But modulo that, That's aren't we already in that situation? Like we're, we're just cogs in this big machine. The machine is capitalism. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, no, hundred percent, man. That's the thing. That's the thing is that it is already pretty much that way. And I think it does have its roots in industrialism. You know, it's not, it's not a new thing. It's, it's, it's like continuous with, just working more and more hours per week and, you know, um, valuing certain things over others though, like valuing, valuing efficiency and STEM stuff more than anything else. Um, you know, uh, being really concerned with material well-being, which I understand <laughs> I am too. Um, but you know, uh, that all, all of, it's just a tendency, it's a trajectory, but, but you're kind of right that that's a bit of a separate question from whether there's like a higher level organism or not um but but it's the it's those it's those kinds of effects that we're already uh in immersed in that i'm worried about like i don't care if there's some you know weird super being that i'm a neuron in if i have a good life i guess if, if i have a human life i guess oh, okay. i'm attached to humanity somewhat i'm not okay humanist, I'll, I'll say that on this podcast uh, <laughs> i'll admit that i'm not a, a transhumanist um for various reasons I, I'm very conflicted about the question, are you, uh, am I a trans, am I Pete Manic a transhumanist? Mm. Uh, on paper, I want to be a transhumanist. It sounds like the sort of thing I'd be into. Spaceships and laser guns and jetpacks and uh, it's, always, it's always appealed to me. Uh, but when I, as I get old and, you know, I have children and I worry about my children and I worry about myself and I'm you know, I'm really thinking about things about like, well, what is the quality of life? What makes a life meaningful? What, like, um, what, what sorts of things are worse than death? When I think about those questions, um, I can easily imagine these hellscape horrifying scenarios, um, whereby the meaning is sucked out of life. And, um, and they're not necessarily killer robot scenarios. They might just like, they might like what happens if like all our jobs like all our jobs are done by machines like there's just nothing even stuff that you thought was really creativity intensive or intelligence intensive the things that you think of as like human like the arts um what if machines could do all that like a machine could teach you a class a machine could give you a lecture a, a, a machine could write a novel what happens to those of us who aren't machines? What happens to our sense of the meaning and purpose of life? What's the value of our relationships? 
what the fuck are we going to do with our time? Yeah. We're just going to blast our, our consciousness with drugs, uh, entertainments. Um, that, so more and more I worry about that stuff. And I'm, when I get in that frame of mind, I tend towards like a neo Luddism. Like we just like the, hu- the human industrial experiment is uh, like obviously a failure We're we're, we're going to be in hell if we don't go back to, um, I don't know, buggies and, yeah. and horses. Well, it's cool. I'm glad you worry about this too. Uh, but I, I haven't found a solution to this. Like it's, it's a real dilemma. Cause I don't think it could be that this is a dead end, right? Like that we shouldn't have gone down this technology. Yeah. We shouldn't have done this. And we just have to like, like go back, but also all this amazing shit emerges out of this trajectory we've been on that never existed before and that's valuable too this novelty i can't believe that i'm not sure that that's just a mistake either so i'm hoping that there's like a middle road here where like you know like i but and the one thing that gives me comfort though is i don't think i don't think machines will get better at art than we (laughs) than we are better at like being an innovative like musician or something like that there's really good shit out there like ai generated music but i think it's always uh throwing some chaos into the mix is what makes it good i'm on that question i'm inclined to think that they will be as good and that's gonna change the way we value stuff Hmm. so um you know here's a prediction there will one day be machines that could write novels as good or better than humans and humans just won't be interested in those novels so much i mean there's always going to be some weirdos there's always some perverts that are right. They just want to <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. a machine. Um, but you know, so there might be someone who's like, no, I only read machine literature. Um, but I think the general, the, this is, again, this is a prediction. Of course I could be wrong. Um, but I think that if there are still people that we're going to value, like the, the way right now we value things that are handmade, even though you could get something that is machine made, and in some senses, it's better. There's still differences and people are able to value those differences. So they might like, yeah, you could have this thing that's machine made and has all these extra features, but I want this simple homey thing that was knitted by a five-year-old. And even though it kind of fucking sucks, I love it. I love it because of the flawed, organic human origin uh, behind it. And so I'd rather read a novel that was written by an actual human being than a, a novel that is in some sense better, but there's no, no humanity behind it. Um, like it was written by someone who never took a shit. <laughs> it was written by someone who, who's never really feared that their child was going to die. Even though in some sense, it's like a better novel. It's got better chase scenes or, or more compelling uh, romance scenes or something like that. I don't care. I want the one that came from the human because I'm a human and I'm dedicated to the, the human project. But that's exactly, I agree. I mean, I think that's exactly what I had in mind though with like, yeah, the, the flaws in, in artworks relative to some genre ideal or something is what makes them interesting. So it, in the, it's in the deeper version of that is, yeah, it's, it's the, the human sort of flaws that make make it interesting to other humans. But I guess the one, the one scenario I can imagine is that yeah, humans care about human created art. It's just that humanity itself is not really the center of the show anymore. 
it's like jazz or something, right? Like I love jazz, right? But it's not like there was a time when it was mainstream, right? Um, and like you could like being a the best jazz musician was being at the, on the top of the world. Yeah. You know, all the lights were on you. It was amazing. And now I still love jazz just as much, but it's not going to be the most interesting thing happening in the universe. So that could happen to humanity as such, right? <laughs> and I would still love it. <laughs> and I, it's like, it's either that, or, <laughs> right? It's either humanity kind of fades away into its little, you know, kind of hobby. It's like a hobby to humanity is a hobby for humans or, or we just keep developing and ramifying it. And like, we have the best version of jazz and like uh, all the stuff we've ever liked. And we just keep projecting it and expanding on it. But I don't know. Uh, it seems more likely that the way things go is the first thing to me, pessimistic as that is. <laughs> I mean, whatever, right? Like, like, I guess it's the question of whether sort of what makes us human, the human race is like, is mortal as, as individuals are, or whether it's, we can transmogrify that into like some thing that goes on forever. Um, fuck, I don't know. Uh, By the way, um, a piece of science fiction that, that dwells in, in this area is uh, that, that I love, uh, highly recommend, is by the Polish science fiction author Stanislaw Lem. And it's this volume called Imaginary Magnitudes. And um, it's a collection of, of book reviews of non-existent books. But the books that are reviewed, they all kind of pivot or, uh, you know, hover orbit around issues in artificial intelligence. So one of one of the books that's that's reviewed is about um, basically AI generated uh, literature, and the and this was written I think in the fifties or sixties. It's funny how much of, of the stuff that's going on in the, in the contemporary discussions mirrors stuff Lem was doing. But anyways, um, in these uh, artificial literature studies, they have these AI systems, and you could you could input to the system the, uh, to generate novels in the style of Dostoevsky, or you could, you know, you could say, okay, write an, another Frank Herbert Dune story. And it could do these things, but then they, uh, they could get even more fine grain than that. So they, they could um, come up with these models of, of literary development. So like, okay, there's early Hemingway, middle Hemingway, late Hemingway, and we could talk about what the parameters are that you tra would transform an early Hemingway into a, an er a late Hemingway. But then now that we've got those kinds of uh, mechanisms, that kind of understanding, we could do all sorts of extrapolations and interpolations. So like, what if Hemingway lived for 40,000 years? Like he didn't die. He's like, so like 40,000 years in the future, what would be, you know, so assuming like Hemingway keeps up his rate of production and he keeps changing in the directions he's been changing, what would the 40,000 years in the future? And then they go backwards too. So like, let's just forget the fact that Hemingway had a birthday and didn't exist, let alone write books prior to his birthday. Let's just take this model that allows us to extrapolate forward and back and now dial it back to like, what would a Hemingway novel from 1000 BC be like? That's right. awesome. yeah. So there's just this weird literature of weird books about like, you know, what if you crossed um, whatever these two authors and then 
crank the dial up to 40,000 years in the past, what would that literature be like? And, yeah. But anyways, Lem is just great for generating these, these scenarios. And it's just so overwhelming. You read, you read all these little examples. And it's just so weird. It's so deliciously weird. I highly recommend it. Imaginary Magnitudes by uh, Stanislaw Lem. Um, can I guide us uh, out of ethics and into something more, more nuts and boltsy? Yeah, please. Sure. So uh, let me ask you about the quest for AGI, um, artificial general intelligence. Some people are super skeptical that there could ever be such a thing. Other people think we're pretty close to it. Maybe we're just a decade or two away from it. Some people think there's very specific hurdles that have to be overcome. Um, so what are your, what are your opinions about the, the, the feasibility of AGI? Do you think there are like, it's a long way off. It's pretty close. What are, are there any specific obstacles? Like we have to solve the compositionality problem and then yeah, most of the way there, what, what are you, what are your spicy takes about the, <laughs> the, the nuts and bolts of the quest for AGI? Yeah. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so, so what I think is that we're already, I, I sort of said that as much in this recent um, tweet thread, I think that we're, kind of already there it's just that it's not that intelligent so like we have generality we just don't have very it's like we have a minuscule amount of general intelligence in systems like that google robot butler so i'm not saying that that's the holy grail but it's a there's no sharp distinction between the holy grail and what we have and so that means that i don't think there's any specific challenge that we haven't solved like compositionality etc um I think language vector space language models do what we need. There's a lot of evidence that like humans use things like that. Um, there could be like deeper, more evolved structures that these you know, models that we currently train on a bunch of linguistic data don't have. And I guess that's, that's, that's the thing that I think we're lacking. And I don't know how far away we are from that. It is, is just um, it basically, uh, well, like I think how the, the brain differs from like uh, a big um, neural net language model is just that, you know, uh, it's got it's got a lot of priors in like the in like the Bayesian sense, like built into its structure. Um, and so there's no like specific thing. It's not like there's some there might be like virtual machines, right, that are instantiated in neurons that are doing something that we that we haven't figured out how to program into neural nets yet. But I think most of that um can be learned by sort of gradient descent over time. It's just, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> I think uh, it, it, we just need a lot of time to do it. Um, but a friend of mine, actually, I was just talking to uh, Raphael Kaufman. Was it, um, I was debating this a bit on him, uh, with him on Twitter. And he pointed out, th this, th this actually gave me pause. This, this is something I hadn't thought of, which is that evolution is like a, uh, <laughs> You, right, it's like you need to 100% do the things you have to do to survive. You can't just sort of approximate it statistically, right? And so the brain, the, the brain, the human brain has gone through all of these um, tests, right? This fit, fitness test that's lasted for millions of years. And anything that survived had to 100% pass whatever the test is for reproduction. Uh, you can make it into more of a graded thing by talking about how much reproduction there is. Right. So I don't think this is decisive, but, but the point is that's, that is different from like just having to match a distribution like uh, language models do is one thing. And then just having 
millions of years of <clears throat> iterated, um, um, you know, natural selection or whatever kind of selection. Um, you know, I, I think selection operates on all all these levels, scales, neurons, um, phenotypes, all of that. But um, anyway, I feel like I'm meandering uh, with respect to the question. It's just like AGI. Um, I don't think we need any special mag magical ingredients. Um, you know, like it's just, we probably need uh, a whole lot of time. It, it, and it also depends on like how, like what, what we mean by general, like what would count as that. And like, uh, whether there's something really special about us, like the one, the one, uh, the last thing I'll say, the one thing that gives me pause here is that um, I kind of, I kind of like Leibniz's idea that like we are, that like um, organisms are machines that are machines in all their parts. <laughs> so this goes back to the general sort of generalization of functionalism where you, tell, you say, well, the functions of neurons and quarks might matter. Um, so I don't know if we can approximate that, right? I, I don't know. Like, again, we, we've, emerged out of history and the origins of history itself are really kind of unfathomable. So I don't know if we can, within history, if we can produce a thing that's got the requisite complexity or whatever the fuck the variable is. Um, but shit, I don't know. I feel like, um, I guess I don't have any strong opinions on it, except it's not compositionality. So uh, let me ask you a slightly different question. Um, and let me, preface this by saying it's going to be very rambly so if you're feeling bad about rambling you're not alone <clears throat> i'm gonna i'm gonna co-ramble with you um so anyway so here's the rambly setup back when i was young in grad school in my 20s it was um often brought up as if it was an established fact that chomsky defeated skinner with a single blow from his, the vorpal blade of his poverty of the stimulus argument. He just cut his head right off with that awesome poverty of the stimulus argument. Now people that know the actual history of, uh, of Skinner and Chomsky know that it wasn't that simple, but as often the case, things are taught to you in this kind of like legendary mode, like, you know, behaviorism was defeated the end <laughs> anything that even resembles behaviorism has got to be garbage because we all know that noam came and just destroyed skinner with that poverty of the stimulus argument um and there's a general kind of thinking that went along with that at least you know when you're reading philosophers coming off of the east coast in the 80s uh the Fodor, uh the poor kind of army, you get this feeling of like that. What the behaviorists were trying to do, or the empiricists more generally, is just throw a whole bunch of learning at the problem. Like just, just have it learn more stuff. Um, and there was this, this feeling that that was totally mistaken, that what you needed was a lot of intrinsic structure, maybe something as structured as like the language of thought that you needed, you needed built into the, at the hardware, you needed compositionality, systematicity, you need to build in that kind of stuff that it couldn't simply be a whole bunch of learning. It had to be these very complicated innate structures. Um, I get the impression as a kind of a bystander that the, the landscape has shifted greatly. 
that the successes of these models seem to vindicate that like kind of old school behaviorism, like methodological, psychological behaviorism slash empiricism, whereby, yeah, you, in on the innate side of things, you just need a general learning mechanism. And then the rest is going to be in the data. Like, there you go. Just like, and, and now our computers are big enough and fast enough that, that we can really just throw a bunch of data at, at, at it and see what happens. Um, so anyway, the question is, do you think that, that it's correct to say that things have changed in that way that like the, we used to think you couldn't do it with big data. And then now we've learned like, there's a fuck ton that you could do with big data. Yeah. Lots of data, just throw lots of a huge corpus. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty much right. Except I'm not sure that what we're doing humans is exactly just the big data thing, but but let, let me just say the way my perspective on this has shifted in the last 10 years. So I used to think that innate versus in learned was a big, big deal. Now I think it's just how much is model selection over the course of evolution versus um, parameter tuning over the course of a lifetime. So it doesn't feel like a big deal anymore. It, it is a big deal still, right? Because if you want to build a system that does X, you have to like, you, it's not so easy to just run evolution for a million years, right? But like, I, there's not a, there's not a big difference in kind it's it's all learning right it's it's, it's learning either in the, at, at the uh, time scale of, of a individual or a lifetime or at the time scale of the phenotype right or evolution or something um but like i, I think the, the landscape the landscape's totally shifted um like poverty of the stimulus this ties back to the unsupervised learning stuff we were talking about at the beginning right so like what jeff hinton pointed out who's like for my money, he's like the, the guy in, uh, in machine learning. But he, he pointed out that if you use the sensory signal, which is incredibly rich in information as a, as a learning signal to like learn all this structure, then um, you can do a lot just with that signal. And Chomsky said the signal's impoverished. And I think there was a lot of evidence that it just isn't, right? It's just, it's in the high order statistics of, of the inputs. Um, <clears throat> I've had a lot of arguments with linguists about this stuff. I think you can point to specific ways in which vector spaces learn the kinds of structures you'd need. Um, but that doesn't mean, I guess, that, right, that like systems like Lambda are, are doing the thing we're doing because maybe you need the million years to learn exactly that, right? But I mean, it's pretty damn good. And it's hard for me to believe that there's a big qualitative difference <clears throat> between what we're doing and something like that that's like maybe a little bit better, but, but the one, one further caveat is um, like, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of evidence. I'm not going to quite articulate this exactly precisely, but evidence that the brain isn't really doing big data. It's more like small data. So like in the sense that there's, um, I, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be able to quantify this right now, but basically there, there are more synapses to train than there are like meaningful moments of experience on which to train the thing. Yeah. So the prior, the model really does matter in a way that like, like probably the, 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 the performance we're getting out of the best performing machine learning systems, like which have like trillions of parameters. Um, that's probably not quite how the brain's doing it. Like, like we, we probably have some, something more built in, um, but it would have been something that was learned over 
over the course of evolution. By the way, there's a really uh, cute Paul Churchland argument um, from several years back, which I, I think of as kind of a, uh, a, it's kind of like the reverse of the pover- of the Chomsky poverty, the stimulus argument. Um, I don't I don't remember what Ch- Churchland calls it, but I I would call it the poverty of the genome argument. So Churchland is arguing against this general kind of Chomsky Fodor view that if you if you think information theoretically in terms of like okay what's the, on the biggest estimate you could come up with for the genome how how many bits of information can be stored in the genome and then now let's think about the human brain in terms of its synapses you could come up with a calculation that would tell you given how many synapses there are how many bits of information you would need to specify those synapses to have um so like here could you given this the memory capacity of the genome and the memory demands of a brain that's able to speak a language could that be an ape could you in theory have someone who's born able to speak English because somehow all the information about what the synapses would need to be set to is stored in the, um, in the genome. And the rest of the argument from there is just math. It's, it's just arithmetic actually. Like and the answer is no, there's nowhere near enough fucking information in the genome. To, <laughs> even assuming like you're using the whole genome just for the brain, it's not enough. There's way more synapses than that. Uh, anyway, it's a fun, super fun argument. I love Paul Churchland papers. They often have some cool technical thing that's like that. Um, in our time remaining, I wanted to sneak in a, a question, a, one more super half-baked or maybe even a quarter-baked question. It's kind of like the one I was just asking you about the poverty stimulus, but this is more metaphilosophical. Um. Because one thing I wonder about when I think about this stuff is how much this tells us about the way we should be conducting ourselves as philosophers, by, by which I mean, you know, a lot of analytic philosophers, they seem to act like what concepts are is like a list of necessary and sufficient conditions. So if you look at the methods, when people are like coming up with you know, biconditionals, S knows the P if and only if S ate a banana on Wednesday. Um, the presupposition seems to be like you're analyzing a concept and what, what it is to analyze a concept is to attempt to discover what the necessary and sufficient conditions are for being alive or the necessary and condition, sufficient conditions for having propositional knowledge or whatever. Um, but as people have been saying to each other for decades, probably that's not the way concepts work. And that has some real ramifications that even like, you know, Wittgenstein is trying to deal with this. If, if concepts aren't definitions, if they're more like family resemblances, then, well, now how do you do philosophy? What, what do you do given that there's no such thing as like the true analysis or the correct definition? Um, and so I wonder like if, if, if our spicy takes from before the break are correct and that what we are doing is what Lambda is already able to do then what does that tell us about for example concepts or thinking like what what should we be doing if we're gonna keep doing philosophy like how yeah. what lessons are there at the metaphilosophical level 
the thing about the poverty stimulus, the thing about like, is this, does that have moral status? Those are all first order philosophical questions. But now there's the second order philosophical question, which is like, well, what the fuck is philosophy? How do you do it well? Um, yeah. Right. Is it, is it trying to find the necessary and sufficient conditions for being alive? Yeah. Maybe not if, if concepts don't resolve into lists of necessary and sufficient conditions. If concepts, if knowing a concept is something like, oh, do you know about uh, Gringus or do you know about this thing? Uh, uh, Gorgas? Um, there's this, oh God, it's so cool. Uh, th this is a meme that has emerged from all this Lambda, Dal E type stuff. So someone made up a word uh, uh, like Gringus or like they just made up a word. Um, gr maybe it's Grungus. Yeah, I think that's it. G-R-U-N-G-U-S. They typed in Grungus to, I think, Dolly Mini. Yeah. Um, and Dolly Mini kicked back a, this like troll, a bunch of images of this troll that's got big tusks and long hair. And the images are very similar to each other. And, and, and so like this got shared on Twitter or something. It went viral and lots of other people who have, you know, lots of people have access now to Dolly Mini and you could experiment that yourself they would type in like krungus skateboarding or krungus eating a hoagie or or krungus dancing uh the the macarena and it, it's fucking krungus it's this green troll creature and then you know people have tested some hypotheses about what what the fuck is going on here so they would make up other names that sound kind of like krungus and see what happens so someone like typed in pringus there's a made up word that might be a monster's name. Well, Pringus turned out just to be just like stained glass windows or flowers or something like that. It wasn't a monster. Um, so there's this new cryptid, the Krungus, which has emerged from these uh, big language uh, models. Anyway, so one of the things besides just being intrinsically fucking cool, Krungus, uh, it made me wonder like how many of our like, is this a way of thinking about concepts? Like we, so we have like uh, we, in philosophy, we have these wacky concepts, like someone uh, starts talking about qualia. That's like a technical word kind of, right? Like that's not normal English qualia. That's some bullshit that I think originates with C.S. Peirce. He introduces the term and then it gets picked up by uh, C.S. Lewis a little bit later. And then it kind of like, starts to gel into what we something kind of like the meaning that we use today but here's the thing it's not a real technical term like in math where someone introduces a term and then gives you an explicit definition and then they fucking stick with it it's like one of these bullshitty fake pseudo technical words that no one like gets introduced but no one really fully defines it and then people like start trying to do conceptual analysis on it and publish papers about like could the whole universe have qualia? Could a robot have qualia without ever defining what qualia are? But maybe on this new view of what concepts are, concepts are the sorts of things like, for example, Krungus. Um, they could just be these weird emergent, like the, they don't have to, there doesn't have to ever be a definition of Krungus. Yeah. Krungus wasn't in the corpus, but somehow what was in the corpus, like something about, 
words that start with CR and words that end with OUS and all these different things like gave rise to this emergent concept or this category, which maybe doesn't have a, a real word referent. There is no Krungus. Um, there's no Krungus among us. But nonetheless, we somehow have this concept. Um, anyway, this just made me wonder how many of our concepts are kind of like that. Maybe qualia are like that. Maybe qualia is a Krungus concept. Or maybe some really big, important concepts like truth or goodness or beauty are, are Krungus concepts. <laughs> no um, way, not those. And now what? As, like, as philosophers, people train to sit on their asses and just stroke their beards and think about shit. If that's the way thought works, if we've got a, a head full of Krungi, now what? What, is, what lessons, if any, does that have for the conduct of loving well, wisdom? <laughs> well, one thing that you just made me realize is we shouldn't do conceptual analysis on technical terms of philosophy, because I agree that that's probably the source of a lot of waste. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but like, I think there's a, a notion of concept that survives here, which is actually the one that I swear I cited you, like you wrote a paper about the Churchman's notion of concepts as attractors. Uh, and I think that pretty much survives intact to like the newer neural network models. They're, they're, they're minima in a giant energy landscape that's created by all these simultaneous constraints, including ones coming in from vision and proprioception shit. So that and, and what survives there is there are discrete, these attractors are discrete things, even though it's in a continuous space, they, they, they behave as discrete entities, right? And a lot of them can get created, right? You're creating this whole landscape. Uh, in virtue of trying to parse these inputs and you probably create lots of features that you weren't intending to create or that weren't explicitly in the corpus. So like that's there, man. I think, I think concepts are still there. To me, the weakest link is uh, philosophy as conceptual analysis. But again, like maybe we should focus on, you know, fundamental concepts that have stood the test of time. Like, okay, I think truth, beauty, even just like car shit like that is like more, um, likely to, to have something to it in terms of being a stable attractor across people than like uh, qualia. Um, but I think we should just be really selective about the, the concepts we analyze. Um, but I, that's fascinating, man. I did not know about that whole thread. I'm going to, that's the first thing I'm going to do after this call is, um, <laughs> is look into that because that's Google Krungus, man. Krungus is awesome. It's everything I've ever wanted out of neural net, like art, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, oh, here's another thing that you might like. Um, there's a group project um, of people interested in psychedelic art. Um, so art that's that's explicitly done under the influence of various psychedelic drugs, or is explicitly done it's with the you know inspiration from that. So maybe you're not high while you make the art, but you know what it's like. You did it once before or something like that. So anyways, this group of people uh, have, and I'll find this and link it to the, the show notes. They have created this huge database of psychedelic, human-generated psychedelic artwork. Um, and then they, uh, they might have done some more to the curation process. I don't know if they're tagging it in certain ways or what. But this huge database of human-generated psychedelic art. Um, and then they train one of these like big data things on it to, and it generates its own psychedelic art. Right. But unlike say, for example, like say Google deep dream, when that came out, what, seven years ago or something like that, 
that wasn't trained on psychedelic art, but its outputs look very like if you've if you've done acid, you would agree like, oh, you've seen some of this stuff before. Like there's it's really locking on to something, at least seemingly, that's similar to our own perceptual systems when we're on DMT or LSD or something like that. But this project, there the the training is itself psychedelic. Um, and I think there might be maybe some tags also, but I'm not sure about that. Like they're tagging it as like this is more salvia divinorum art. This is more DMT art. This is, I don't know. Um, but I'll link to that. It's very cool. cool. Not as cool as Krungus. Krungus is really, I don't know why Krungus is really exciting. Um, and somebody needs to be making a horror movie about this stuff right now. Like if they haven't already got film rights on Krungus, uh, the Dali murders, uh, the black Dali, uh, something. Uh, there's got to be money to be made uh from this as a subgenre of horror um but anyway i'm rambling now no no I, Hail Krungus. I knew krungus when you said it i knew krungus was like a weird trolley monster thing right so it's not like there's uh-huh. such, and whereas pringus I'm like pringus? Yeah, pringus pringus drives a prius can't be that bad but krungus <laughs> like maybe hangs out with krampus maybe knows about big chungus who's a little eerie um although probably harmless uh-huh. Krungus definitely, you know, is kind of like maybe some Freddy Krueger is is uh, getting in there. Um, Krungus, wow. yeah. This is well. Uh, we're uh, we should wrap it up because I was originally planning to be out by uh, twelve thirty. Um, any. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff I like. I would love to talk to you about. Maybe you could come back and talk about the free energy principle. Don't you know stuff about the free energy principle? And yeah, and- it's all related to this stuff intimately. Um, yeah, yeah, I love to. I love to. Because um, um, that's another thing that I just feel super ignorant about. Like if if someone said, "Manda, can you lecture tomorrow about what the free energy principle is?" I would say, "Nope, no." Like, I, mean- I have no idea. To be um, fair, it's not it's not the clearest thing to pin down, but yeah. This, uh, uh, but th- this has been a very super cool and fun conversation, and uh, really clarifying and, and helpful, um, at least for me. I suspect the audience will dig it. Also, well, I hope so. It's a lot of fun for me, and I I I, I love exploring this stuff. Uh, it's um Krungus especially I mean and uh you know I, there's just I, I'm frustrated sometimes I can't articulate things I, I feel like I, I know what I want to say but it's, it's very difficult to serialize into language um but you know yeah always- well that's that's the great thing about this medium you know it's not a it's not a conference presentation it's not a classroom lecture but it's not just me and you shoot, shooting the shit at the bar. There's a little bit of that extra pressure because it's being recorded for, for an audience. So it's a very interesting, I find, the whole process of thinking out loud in a podcast conversation is really helpful and productive. <clears throat> and it also helps if there's cool people such as Alex Kiefer involved. Uh, I really enjoy talking to you about this stuff. Um, I'm going to push the button. Please stay on 
so we could talk outside of the recording. Um, Thanks. But while while I'm still recording, let me just once again say thank you very much, Alex. And I look forward to uh, having you back on to talk more about all that other stuff, free energy principle, Bayesianism, the predictive brain, so on and so forth. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Here we go. Pushing the button. Thank you for listening to Space Time Mind. For more info about today's episode, as well as info about our video series and other supplements, check out our website at spacetimemind.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your comments on Twitter at spacetimemind99 or on our blog at spacetimemind.com. And please rate us on iTunes to help spread the word. Until next time, this is Pete Mandick saying, Space Time Mind. Space Time Mind. Space Time Mind.